0: Excitement, adventure,
1: mystery—around every corner. No matter what you choose,
2: fantasy awaits you. It's time to pick your path. Pick your
0: path. The podcast where you. Charge of your own to
1: death.
0: Hello, interactive narrative fans. This is episode 4 of Pick Your Path, a Choose Your Own Adventure Style Podcast. It's entitled Trapped on Channel 2, and it was written by me, Matt Benson. Uh, In this episode, you play a Canadian teenager in 1999 who's a bit of a film snob, and you get to explore the exciting world of 90s network television and learn some life lessons about dealing with your family. Uh, This is a bit of a departure from my first episode, which you may remember, which was called uh, Don't Love the Universe. This one is a more sort of character-driven situation. It's less about the uh, crazy scenarios and, and, and more about the character, although there are, of course, some crazy scenarios you can become an orangutan at one point. As always, our amazing theme song was uh, written and performed by Christopher Wrigley of Bunhouse Jingles. You can commission jingles of your own at customjingles.net. And our incredible artwork was done by Wayne Jansen of WayneJansenArt.com. Uh, and that's Jansen, J-A-N-S-E-N. We have exciting news. Pick Your Path is now on Twitter, at PickYourPod. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, get updates on the show, and fun little tidbits of CYOA type action, you can follow at PickYourPod on Twitter. Uh, You can also now write us an email at PickYourPod at gmail.com. So if you have any questions, uh, concerns, or uh, maybe uh, ideas you'd like to share with us, you can send them over to PickYourPod at gmail.com. As I mentioned, this episode was written by me, Matt Benson. I also edited and produced it. Our narrator is Matt Holland. Pick Your Path is an enhanced podcast, which means that it has chapters like an audiobook. If you already know how to use an enhanced podcast, skip to chapter one now. If you'd like instructions, just keep listening. If you'd like to listen to our parents' guide with information on what to expect uh, in the show, skip to parents' guide or keep waiting after the instructions. Thank you, and I hope you enjoy the show.
1: This is an enhanced podcast, which means it is broken up into chapters. At the end of each chapter, you'll be presented with a choice. To pick that choice, simply skip to that chapter. In iTunes, the chapters control is under the control heading. The podcasts app on iOS devices, like an iPhone, will allow you to skip to any chapter. Tap on chapters and then choose a chapter. If you're an Android user, the VLC app allows you to skip to any chapter. In the VLC app, simply tap the options button, the three dots, Tap the arrow next to Go to Chapter, and select a chapter. Most other Android apps don't read chapters in an enhanced podcast file. An audiobook file will also be available for download at benviewnetwork.com/audiobook. audiobook.
0: Alright, this is the parent's guide for Trapped on Channel 2, Episode 4 of Pick Your Path. Uh, this is a mostly tame one, I'd say. Oh, there is some, some a few uh, dark endings. You can, you can die in this one. Uh, you can get shot, although that's that's very rare as only, I think two or three endings. Uh, you can fall below the under uh, frozen lake and die that way. Uh, and then there's some sort of uh, you know classic. Existential crises, dying, uh, universe ending, sort of thing. I can't seem to do an episode without including a few of those. Uh, I would say, to be honest, the main problem with uh, with uh, youngins listening to this episode, I was all, however, is all the uh, dated references, you know, VCRs, TV shows from the 90s, that sort of thing. Uh, because I'm apparently a crotchety old man already at 24. But uh, otherwise, I would say this is a mainly tame, a mostly tame episode. Uh, not, not not much too bad there. There is a uh, bar in one scene, you go to a bar, but uh, n- neither the player character nor any of the characters you actually interact with are drinking alcohol, so uh, that's just a setting. Um, there's quite a few scenes set in bathrooms, that seems to be another theme of mine, but again, uh, nothing untoward happens in them. So uh, yeah, uh, please enjoy this uh, episode with your youngins,
2: if you are inclined to do so. Chapter 1. It's
3: 1999. You're 16 years old. You live in Dawson Creek, British Columbia. It's a sleepy little town with no relation to the show Dawson's Creek, except that ever since it premiered last year, out of towners have been making annoying little jokes about James Vanderbeek. You hate that, but at least none of them stay in town long. Most visitors you get are just stopping by on the way to Alaska, which is where you'll be heading in a few minutes. You have family in Gustavus, and your mom insists on visiting them once a year. As small and boring as Dawson Creek is, Gustavus is about ten times worse. Right now you're at Jungle Video, the only place with a decent selection within 300 miles. You popped in for a second while your mom gasses up the van. You were happy to see your friend Gordo looking through the foreign film section. Uh, anything new? You ask. (sighs) Not much. He sighs. Oh, but they finally return Jambafo versus Mecha Jambafo. After weeks of me bugging them to bug the guy about it. He yells the last part at the cashier who responds with a dismissive wave of the hand. You give an apologetic shrug. Gordo continues. Oh, check this out. He reaches over to another shelf and brings back a 2 tape set. The best of Bainbridge County. You start laughing. <laughs> What is it, just two blank tapes? I can't believe they're doing a TV movie. I thought everyone hated this show. I think people started getting nostalgic for it as soon as it was canceled. They don't remember how bad it was, Gordo theorizes. The fun is cut short when your mom enters the store. Come on, kiddo, we gotta go, she says. But I was making fun of Bainbridge County. You protest. Uh, you can make fun of Brainbridge County in the car, sweetie. We have to leave now. She stands firm. Say goodbye to Gordo. Have fun, in America. <sighs> he says. I won't, you reply. You leave the video store and set out on the Canadian-Alaskan Highway. Skip to Chapter 2. You're going to Chapter 2 whether
2: you like it or not. Chapter 2 You lean your head on the cold window and watch
3: the trees of British Columbia pass you by. The alpine larch. The vine maple. Oh look! A Sitka spruce! What an adventure this is turning out to be. You know, it's not too late to turn back. We're barely halfway there. You sigh. Your words fog up the window and you idly draw a stick figure with your finger in the condensation. Now stop it! Stop it! Your mom warns without taking her eyes off the road. No, seriously. You tread on, adding a little top hat to your stick figure. We've been on the road for what? Four hours? Just another four back. Bing bang boom, we're home. You do this every year, sweetheart. Because you take me on this trip every year, duh. They're family. You have to visit family. Oh, like one of them? You protest. Aunt Judy just married into it, and Ben was just born into it. Yeah, that's, that's how families work, sweetie. They're like little Alaskan leeches, hiding in the frost, waiting to suck their life. Now stop it! You've pushed it too far. It is her brother's family you're talking about. She cools down. Look at it this way. You get to visit another country every year. How many of your friends can say that? You're a cool international traveler, sweetheart. Headed to America. It's not America, Mom, it's Alaska, you whine. America has Clint Eastwood and, uh, you struggle to think of a second American thing. Finally, you finish. And hamburgers, all they have in Alaska is snow, we've got that at home. Your mother shrugs. They have moose burgers. Ah, you aggressively sigh. The rest of the drive goes slowly and quietly. Finally, you arrive at your aunt and uncle's house in Gustavus. More generous people than you would describe the place as cozy or homey. You think it's a small, dumpy house in a small, dumpy town in the middle of a small, dumpy nowhere. Your mom sits and talks to your aunt and uncle while your 14-year-old cousin, Ben, drags you off to his room. You don't like your cousin, Ben. He watches network TV and likes sports. Ben's a real bummer. You're excited about the big BVN crossover tonight? He coos. What? You spit disdainfully. "'You don't know? Oh, man, I would have thought you of all people would know,' he says. You stare coldly at him. He continues. "'Bainbridge County is coming back as a TV movie, and it's crossing over with the season finale of Watertown High and the season premiere of Big Ape on Campus. Oh, it's going to be a huge event!' "'Uh, I don't like those shows,' you say, trying to use as little words as possible. "'You don't like those shows?' He repeats, dumbfounded. Wait, have you ever actually seen them? You try again to force him into silence with your icy death stare. You fail. I think you'd like them if you watched them. Here, which do you want to watch first? He takes three tapes from his closet. Big Ape on Campus, Episodes 1 through 3. Watertown High, Episodes 7 through 9. And that Bainbridge County best of that you are making fun of back at the video store. The thought of watching any of these makes you sick, but at least it'll get your cousin to shut up for a bit. To watch Bainbridge County, skip to Chapter 3. To watch Big Ape on Campus, skip to Chapter 4. To watch Watertown High, skip to
2: Chapter 5. Chapter 3 You think about what
3: you must have done in a previous life to deserve this as your cousin hits play on the VCR. It hasn't been rewound, so it starts mid-scene. ''Oh, this is a good part!'' squeals Ben. You watch begrudgingly. A man and a woman stand underneath the terminal at a bus station. The woman has big, poofy 80's hair. The man has a perm and a mustache. So, this is it. You're leaving again. You weren't even going to say goodbye? says the man Ben whispers that's Chet and Vanessa they love each other but they never shh you shush your cousin choosing the lesser of the two evils I can't stay here this county is toxic it pushes people apart makes them hate each other I don't ever want to see you that way says Vanessa well that wouldn't happen to us insists Chet not if you come with me invites Vanessa. You know I can't do that. I know. They stare down in silence for a moment. When they look up, Chuck goes in for a kiss. No, says Vanessa. If you kiss me now, it'll be the last time ever. I can't live with that. Suddenly, the screen goes black. What just happened? Says Ben, a trace of panic in his voice. You say nothing, hoping that the situation will resolve itself. Ma'am! screams Ben. His mother, your Aunt Judy, comes into the room. What's wrong, sweetie? She asks. The, the TV's broken, and the BVN crossover is tonight, and I, I need the TV to watch the BVN crossover. Eh, eh, eh. He cries. Your mom and uncle have come to see the commotion. Okay, well, I'm sure Ralph can fix it in time. He always does. She says, turning to your mom. Ralph's our TV repair guy. We must have had this set fixed a thousand times. Ben just refuses to let us replace it. Well, I, I like the noise it makes when it turns on. He whines. What, what if I never hear that voice again? It seems like he's going to start crying. We'll fix it. It'll be fine. Your aunt soothes. I'll take it right now. Oh, shoot, I can't take it in. I, I have to keep an eye on the roast. You see the opportunity to get away from your cousin. I could take it in. I could take the TV in. You almost shout, eager to make the offer before your mom and uncle can pipe in to say they can watch the roast. Oh, that's right. You drive now, Aunt Judy says. Two months in and already having a driver's license is paying off. She gives you the keys to her minivan and money for the repairs. And just like that, you're driving through a bustling downtown Gustavus with a busted TV in your back seat. You're coming to an intersection. You have to turn right to get to the TV repair shop, but the sooner the TV is repaired, the sooner you have to go back to your cousin. If you turn left to explore the town and stay away from your family for as long as possible, skip to Chapter 6. If you turn right to get
2: the TV fixed, skip to Chapter 7. Chapter 4 You think about what you must
3: have done in a previous life to deserve this as your cousin hits play on the VCR. It hasn't been rewound, so it starts mid-scene. Oh, this is a good part, <laughs> squeals Ben. You watch begrudgingly. A man in an expensive suit, sitting in an expensive office, looks across his desk at a soaking wet 18-year-old boy wearing flip-flops, cargo shorts, and a t-shirt. Do you have anything to say for yourself, Mr. Newbauer? The man says sternly. Ben whispers, That's Bolton James. He's the vice-president of the school, and that student just... shh." You shush your cousin, choosing the lesser of the two evils. I didn't think so. Continues Bolton James. Do you know when this school was founded? 1630... Starts the kid. 1636! Harvard is older than the country it's in, and for almost 400 years, we have been able to provide a quality of education higher than anywhere else in the world. Bolton lectures. An orangutan wanders into frame from behind him. The audience snickers. And do you know why we've been able to do that? Dignity. The orangutan bends over and pats her own butt. Huge laugh from the crowd. The actor playing Bolton does that horrible sitcom thing where he pretends he's thinking while waiting for the laughter to die down. Your actions today lacked dignity. The orangutan picks her nose. They were not worthy of Harvard. And if this behavior continues, I fear you will not be... The last line is distorted by the orangutan rubbing her finger up and down Bolton's lips while he's trying to speak. Suddenly, the screen goes black. What just happened? Says Ben, a trace of panic in his voice. You say nothing, hoping that the situation will resolve itself. Ma'am! Screams Ben. His mother, your Aunt Judy, comes into the room. What's wrong, sweetie? She asks. The, the TV's broken, and the BVN crossover's tonight, and I, I need the TV to watch the BVN crossover. Eh, eh, eh. He cries. Your mom and uncle have come to see the commotion. Okay, well, I'm sure Ralph can fix it in time. He always does, she says, turning to your mom. Ralph's our TV repair guy. We must have had this set fixed a thousand times. Ben just refuses to let us replace it. Well, I I like the noise it makes when it turns on, he whines. What if I never hear that voice again? It seems like he's going to start crying. We'll fix it. It'll be fine, your aunt soothes. I'll take it right now Oh, Shoot, I can't take it in I I have to keep an eye on the roast You see the opportunity to get away from your cousin I can take it in, I can take the TV in You almost shout Eager to make the offer before your mom and uncle To pipe in to say they can watch the roast Oh, that's right You drive now, Aunt Judy says Two months in and already Having a driver's license is paying off she gives you the keys to her minivan and money for the repairs, and just like that, you're driving through a bustling downtown Gustavus with a busted TV in your back seat. You're coming to an intersection. You have to turn right to get to the TV repair shop. But the sooner the TV is repaired, the sooner you have to go back to your cousin. If you turn left to explore the town and stay away from your family for as long as possible, skip to Chapter 6. If you turn right to get the TV fixed,
2: skip to Chapter 7. Chapter 5 You think about what you must have done in a previous life to
3: deserve this, as your cousin hits play on the VCR. It hasn't been rewound, so it starts mid-scene. Oh, this is a good part! Squeals Ben. You watch begrudgingly. A blonde girl about your age walks down a hallway wearing a lab coat. Two men, also in lab coats, pass, and she gives an officious nod before ducking behind a corner, and pulling a Nokia 9000 communicator from her pocket. You scoff at how long the shot holds on the logo to make sure everyone knows it's Nokia 9000 communicator. She furiously types a message into the device. It reads, I'm in. Where to now? The reply comes instantly. Office, two doors down. Ben whispers, That's Alex. She's about to discover her boyfriend Max working for- Shh! You shush your cousin, choosing the lesser of the two evils. Alex walks into the office to see a teenage boy, Max. He notices her. It's not what you think, he says. I think you're working for the government, she replies coldly. I mean, the government is not what you think if you just listen, he starts. You sniveling, psychophantic daddy's boy. I can't believe I trusted you, she yells. Suddenly, the screen goes black. What just happened? Says Ben, a trace of panic in his voice. You say nothing, hoping that the situation will resolve itself. Ma'am! Screams Ben. His mother, your Aunt Judy, comes into the room. What's wrong, sweetie? She asks. The the TV's broken, and the BVN crossover's tonight, and I I need the TV to watch the BVN crossover. Eh, eh, eh. He cries. Your mom and uncle have come to see the commotion. Okay, well, I'm sure Ralph can fix it in time. He always does. She says, turning to your mom. Ralph's our TV repair guy. We must have had this set fixed a thousand times. Ben just refuses to let us replace it. Well, I, I like the noise it makes when it turns on. He whines. W- what if I never hear that voice again? It seems like he's going to start crying. We'll fix it. It'll be fine. Your aunt soothes. I'll take it right now. Oh, oh, Shoot, I can't take it in. I-, I have to keep an eye on the roast. You see the opportunity to get away from your cousin. I can take it in. I can take the TV in. You almost shout, eager to make the offer before your mom and uncle could pipe in to say they can watch the roast. Oh, that's right, you drive now, Aunt Judy says. Two months in and already having a driver's license is paying off. She gives you the keys to her minivan and money for the repairs. And just like that, you're driving through a bustling downtown Gustavus with a busted TV in your back seat. You're coming to an intersection. You have to turn right to get to the TV repair shop. But the sooner the TV is repaired, the sooner you have to go back to your cousin. If you turn left to explore the town and stay away from your family for as long as possible, skip to Chapter 6. If you turn right to get the
2: TV fixed, skip to Chapter 7. Chapter 6.
3: You turn left. Immediately you notice that there are only three buildings between you and the edge of town. City Hall, boring, a bar, and a diner. If you go to the bar, skip to Chapter 8. If you go to the diner, skip to Chapter 9. Chapter 7. You turn right, then immediately right again into the TV repair parking lot. It's a small place in a strip mall with a taxidermist and a taco temple. You shudder to think of what's in the meat at a taco temple up here. You enter the shop. Wires and glass tubes and other bits of television viscera spread grotesquely across the various surfaces. Little old man in goggles works on a TV with a soldering iron in the back. You're going to ask him for help getting the TV out of the car, but now that you see him, you think better of it. You spot a dolly leaning against the wall. Um, I'm just going to borrow this for a second, you shout at the back of the shop. The repairman responds with a vague noise of acknowledgement. By the time you wheel the TV into the shop, the old man is asleep at the counter, keeping his head propped up with his hand. You cough to get his attention. He snaps awake. What? Hey, that's my dolly, he accuses. Yeah, I borrowed it to bring my TV in, you say. Oh, yeah, I remember you. That was, what, hours ago? Get out of here. We're closed. His shoes. It was just a minute ago. It's only 2.55, you insist. Huh? All right, what do you want? He spits. I need you to fix the TV. My cousin needs it to watch the BVN crossover tonight, so, you know, t- t- take your time. You say sarcastically. You don't want me to fix it? Yes. No, I, I I was just joking. My cousin would be super mad at me if he missed the show. You clarify. The old man comes around the corner, bends down and presses his ear to the back of the television. Shows, he corrects. What? You say out of reflex, forgetting that you don't care. You said show. The crossover is not one big show. It's three shows, all telling different sides of the same story. He explains. Whatever, you say. You don't like television, do you? He asks, moving his ear around the different parts of the set. I like films, you reply. Even you thought you sounded a little smug that time. I don't trust a man who can't see the value in sitting down in front of the boob tube and unwinding every once in a while. That's why I'm in this business. He says, standing up. Uh, I'm not a man, you counter. He squints at you. Yeah, I suppose not. He decides. Well, your set won't be ready till tomorrow, but I can give a loaner to use until then. I don't think my cousin will like that, but if that's what we have to do... You say. Oh, don't worry about your cousin. I've got something special. I think you're going to be very impressed. He promises. He leads you to the back of the store to a TV covered by a sheet. He pulls it off to reveal... A totally normal-looking television set. Okay, great, thanks. I'll get it on the dolly. You say hmm you don't get it he says this is an extraordinary machine it's just a tv you say not the tv you simpleton he screeches pointing to a box of buttons and a dial on top of the set this you have cable you say unimpressed this is not a cable box he declares it's a receiver look around the box You only see a single cord connecting it to the TV. Where's the antenna? You ask. Inside! He smiles proudly. And it's not just that. It can pick up the transmissions from anywhere in the world. You can get shows from other countries on this? You ask. Other countries, yes! He nods. Other times, as well. well. How does that work? You question. A signal is transmitted from the east coast at 5, reaches the west coast at 8, here at 9, he says. That's not how it works, but okay, you say. Hush, of course it is, he counters. And this machine can pick up that signal at any point on the journey. Uh, Even if it did work that way, there's no reason your receiver could do that, you reason. He continues, undeterred. The buttons control the machine, the dials control the time from which you see them. Cool. You lie. Well, I'll get off your hair now. Just gonna load the TV up on the dolly here. You don't believe me. He sighs. Oh, of course I do. You lie even less convincingly. But I have to get back, you know. Can't miss that crossover. I'll show you. We can watch tonight's crossover right now. Which do you want to watch? Watertown High, Bainbridge County, or Big Avon on campus? He asks. I I don't care, you say hesitantly. I can't choose for you, he says, deadly serious. You think you should make a choice. If you watch Watertown High, skip to Chapter 10. If you watch Bainbridge County, skip to Chapter 11. If you watch Big Ape on
2: Campus, skip to Chapter 12. Chapter
3: 8 You pull up to the bar. A humble sign identifies it as the Cinder Block. It's as seedy as Gustavus gets, which is to say, not at all. You walk in to see a handful of locals eating lunch. The men wear plaid, the women wear denim. A man in the 60s stares behind the bar, wiping it down. Afternoon, he greets. Sit anywhere you like, we've got moose burgers on the grill. But if you want something to drink, I'm going to need some identification. You pick a seat at the bar. I'll just have water, you say. He raises a disapproving eyebrow and pours you a glass. You turn around on your stool to take in the surroundings. You notice two men arguing, an old guy in a NASA hat and a young Native American leather jacket. Now, come on, Bill. I don't see why this is such a big deal, pleads the astronaut. I'm sorry, Leslie, I I can't, says Bill. And that's all I'm going to say, no matter how many times you ask. Now I've got investors coming in from Sweden tomorrow, shouts Leslie. I'm going to look like a fool out in that ice. You shouldn't have told them that you know spearfishing, challenges Bill. Why do I need to know spearfishing when my assistant does? He asks. Come on, Bill, why can't you just teach me? One Who Walks says you're in it for the wrong reasons. It wouldn't be good for anyone if I taught you. Bill answers. The argument continues as you turn your head to the proprietor. One Who Walks? You ask. Well, depending on who you ask, that's either Bill's Indian spirit guide or his imaginary friend. He answers. What if I asked you? You press. Well, I don't know anything about that. He says, but I remember many years ago I was hauling lumber through Saskatchewan, driving all night, trying to make it to Alberta before the sunrise. I fell asleep for 15 miles and never drifted out of my lane. When I got out of the truck, I found this in the driver's seat. He hands you an old folded-up piece of paper from his pocket. It reads, in English and in French, Province of Ontario Operator's License. Name of operator, Philippe Duchamp, Jr., Class D, age 53, height 65, eyes purple, hair black, number 24791, expiration date 31 December 1971. You look up from the license. The bartender says, Phil died asleep at the wheel a week before I found it. Huh. You say, handing him back the piece of paper and returning your attention to the argument. Well, what if I asked you to help me build a spaceship? Bill yells, "'Now that's different, Bill. That's classified information!' retorts Leslie. "'Well then, consider this part of my tribe's classified information!' shouts Bill. "'Forget it. I'll figure it out on my own!' "'Good!' they both storm out. "'You don't see anything else interesting happening here, so you decide to follow one of them. "'If you follow Leslie, skip to Chapter 13. If you follow Bill, skip to Chapter 14.'
2: Chapter 9. You pull up to the diner. A large neon sign reads,
3: M Cafe, as in, m Cafe. You park the van and step inside. The staff, which consists of a waitress talking to a man with a hearing aid and another woman behind the counter, are dressed like it's the 1950s, to match the decor of the diner, of course. Most everything in the room is red or white. Aside from yourself and those already mentioned, the only other person in the diner is an elderly woman with thick glasses holding a large bit of wood in her arms. Maybe she was talking to the woman behind the counter before you walked in, but now she just stands there staring at you. The man with the hearing aid wears a very plain black suit. Anywhere you like, hun, says the woman behind the counter. You pick a stool. What can I get you? Um, just a glass of water, you say. Alright, right, one water coming up, says the woman with a well-rehearsed smile. She hands you a glass, and suddenly the woman holding the wood is talking to you. I'm the wood woman. That's what people call me. There's a reason for that. There's reasons for a lot of things in Gustavus, she says. Is the reason because you carry a piece of wood everywhere, you suggest? She smiles at you in a way that seems like an insult before continuing. There's a reason you're here right now, but it's not what you think. You've chosen wrong. Things are happening here, yes, but not for you. You should go back to where you came from and start again. I don't, you start. Yes, you do, she corrects. Just as suddenly as the woodwoman began talking, the man with the hearing aid shouts at the woman behind the counter. Thank you for the coffee, Norma. It was as fine a cup as ever. You jump, a little startled. Excuse me, I didn't mean to startle you. I'm a bit hard of hearing. He taps his earpiece. He turns back to the waitress and says in a normal volume, I hope I'll see you again. Me too, she replies, holding back tears. She closes her eyes and leans in, in anticipation of a kiss. He pauses, then just leaves. Where is he going? You ask the room. The gate. Bad things happen at the gate, says the woodwoman. The waitress bursts into tears and leaves for the back room. If you follow the man to the gate, skip to chapter 17. If you take the woodwoman's advice and go back to your cousin's house, skip to chapter
2: 18. Chapter 10 Uh, okay. Watertown High, I
3: guess. You say? Hmm. He replies and switches on the TV. It shows generic shots of a high school, followed by generic shots of a science lab, all narrated by a generic voiceover. My name is Alexandra Pierce. It starts. I grew up on Area 51. My parents are researchers for the United States government. When I was 12, my mom woke me up in the middle of the night to tell me that she was being called up. That was the last time I saw her. Since then, I've made it my mission to find out what happened to her. Balancing that classes, boys and my best friend, Lee, makes life pretty busy here at Watertown High. Were they worried we'd forget the name of the show? (laughs) You scoff. Don't be a smart aleck, the old man cuts. He moves a folding chair in front of the TV and, with a calmly assertive hand on your shoulder, forces you into it. You feel uneasy. The uneasy feeling is warranted, you learn, as the old man suddenly grabs the back of the chair and pushes you toward the TV. Hard. You throw your arms up to protect your face, and everything goes black. You're in a classroom. An English teacher drones on about symbolism. This doesn't make sense. School's on break. You look out the window and see an endless stretch of desert. Um, Miss Orwell? You should have been dismissed twenty minutes ago. You may leave, says the teacher. You keep staring at the desert. What is this place? Miss Orwell, the teacher says again. You keep looking out the window. A light shoots past in the sky. It looks like a shooting star, but it would have to be either very close or very bright to be visible in the middle of the day like this. The teacher clears his throat and nearly shouts, Miss Orwell. You finally turn your attention from the window. The entire class is staring at you. "'Oh, you're Miss Orwell.' "'You're excused,' says the teacher. "'I believe you have a flight to make.' "'You nod awkwardly and bolt for the door. "'Uh, Miss Orwell,' the teacher interrupts. "'Your things.' "'You gesture toward your desk, "'still with an open book on top and a backpack leaning on the chair. "'You blush as you grab your stuff and exit the classroom "'to a chorus of laughter from your fellow students.' Once in the hallway, you duck into the first bathroom you see. You look in the mirror. You are not you. You're a nerdy teenage girl complete with standard nerd glasses and preppy clothes. You search your backpack for clues as to what's going on. You get your first name, Carly, off some homework, but not much else. You're putting homework away when someone else enters the restroom. You actually recognize her. It's Alexandra Pierce, the main character from Watertown High. Lee! She exclaims. You go by Lee, you just remembered. What are you doing? I've been looking everywhere for you. We have to go. Sorry, Mr. Holloway forgot about the trip. It didn't excuse me until, like, two seconds ago. You tell? Not certain how you knew the teacher's name. It must have been written on the board. Okay, well, we need to go now. We're gonna miss the flight. That's right. You're supposed to fly to Boston today. Officially, it's for a student visit to Harvard. But really, it's because Alex thinks her mom is working on a top-secret recruitment mission there. You feel bad for letting her down. You feel a sense of deep friendship toward her. But you have to get back to your real life. You try to think of how you would do that. Is it like Last Action Hero, where you'll need to find a portal, or is it like Pleasantville, where you have to learn some dumb lesson and just wait for Don Knotts to let you come home? You remember the premise of this show. You're at Area 51. If there was a portal, it would be here but it would crush you to let Alex down. She is your best friend. You feel this pull to go with her. Besides, if her mother is doing top-secret missions at Harvard, who's to say they wouldn't have a portal? Plus, if you're going the Pleasantville route, not betraying your friend is probably the better option. If you go to Boston with Alex, skip to Chapter 19. If you stay at Watertown High to look for a portal, skip to Chapter 20.
2: Chapter 11
3: Uh, okay, Bainbridge County, I guess? You say. Hmm. He replies and switches on the TV. Fanfare plays as the screen wipes from one corny shot of rich people doing rich people things to the next. The cast is revealed one by one. Jessica Harrington as Victoria Bainbridge. Jerry Bargstaff as Pelham Bainbridge. Hamish Callagy as Jessup Bainbridge. Chet Barnes as Chet Bainbridge, with Anne Cranston as Vanessa, in loving memory of Don Smudge. Daddy he tried to take his name off that if he was still alive. You quip. Don't be a smart aleck, the old man cuts. He moves a folding chair in front of the TV and with a calmly assertive hand on your shoulder forces you into it. You feel uneasy. The uneasy feeling is warranted, you learn, as the old man suddenly grabs the back of the chair and pushes you toward the TV, hard. You throw your arms up to protect your face, and everything goes black. You open your eyes. You're on a small plane. Sitting next to you is Chet Barnes. He looks bored. He says, Oh, come on, Mom, you're not gonna finish? You love the Arthur Bainbridge story. I don't think I've ever heard you stop before getting to the part where I'm a failure. Why did a famous television star just call you Mom? You look down at yourself and are shocked to see two wrinkly hands emerging from the sleeves of a fancy pantsuit. You jump. Mom, are you alright? Says Chet. You stare at him for a second, then flee to the aisle. You briskly walk to the bathroom. On the way, you pass two men you know to be your sons. One is stealing a bag of peanuts from the other. The one trying to steal the peanuts is wearing a horrible sun yellow suit with a bolo tie. He also has a greasy ponytail. The other one is wearing a nice suit that you picked out for him. You feel like maybe you're not a great mother. It occurs to you that the man sitting next to you was not Chet Barnes, the actor. It was Chet Bainbridge, the character. You rush into the bathroom, not checking to see if it's vacant or occupied. You look in the mirror. You are Victoria Bainbridge, matriarch of the Bainbridge family, and an all-around evil woman. You take a moment to collect your thoughts and return to your seat. You've got to find a way back to the real world. As long as you're in the TV, you're technically in Gustavus. And you do not intend to spend the rest of your life in Gustavus. Back in your seat, you decide to keep up appearances until you can work out a plan. You spend most of the flight criticizing Chet. You criticize his clothes. Oh, you're wearing that to a business meeting? His parenting abilities. It's hard being a single father, yes, but I don't want my grandson making the same mistakes you did. His face. Has your nose always had that little crook? Hmm. The next barb always seems to be on the tip of your tongue, ready to lash out. It feels like there's some internal force pushing you to do this. Like, it's what you're supposed to do. Between your attacks, you pick up a few bits of information from Chet. You're flying to Harvard to give a speech on the importance of education and how it's helped you as a prominent American businesswoman. Chet is coming along to meet with Donna Lee of Lee & Associates. It's a small but growing real estate concern that Banco has an interest in inquiring. They're also meeting at Harvard. They're both alumni and Donald has a known weakness for nostalgia. Your other sons, Pelham and Jessup, insisted on coming along, but you're not exactly sure why. You land at Logan Airport, where a driver quickly escorts you to a limousine. You're taken directly to Harvard. A separate car takes your bags to the hotel. You think of how to get home. Maybe if you could find a TV here, or... It's so hard to keep your train of thought when you keep noticing new things to lecture your kids about. It's an intense game of whack-a-mole trying not to say all of them. The limo pulls up to Kirkland House, Chet, and years earlier, Donald's old freshman dorm. They plan to meet there, then walk to the Charles Hotel for a lunch meeting. You get out of the car, but are surprised to see not Donald, but Vanessa Chambers, the lecherous little snake that tried to worm her way into this family by stealing Chet's heart when they were teenagers. Chet looks more surprised than you do. Jessop walks Pelham a few steps away to antagonize him and give Chet and Vanessa some space. You do no such thing. Vanessa, what are you doing here? Chet asks. She smirks. It's not like you to not do your research. What do you mean? Chet responds. The company's called Lee and Associates, she says. Well, meet one of the associates. Donald's running a little late, so he's going to meet us at the Charles. Ah, says Chet. So, how are you? Last time we saw each other must have been... 20 years ago, Vanessa finishes. It's clear to you that whatever bitterness or disappointment she felt when she left Chet is gone now. She has only fond memories of that time in her life. You hate that. Oh, how's Vanessa? Chet asks. Not you, I mean little Vanessa, your daughter. He blushes. Your middle-aged son has instantly reverted back to the lovesick teenager you haven't seen since Carter was still in office. Oh, she's good. She just started kindergarten, Vanessa answers. Chet, too! Chet exclaims. "Uh, Not me. I mean, uh, little Chet, my son. I know what you meant. Vanessa smiles warmly at your son. He blushes again. You have to stop this. Oh, how's Michael? You inquire pointedly. Michael's her husband, you remember, retrieving memories from Victoria's brain. Oh, we're, we're no longer together, Vanessa says. They divorced a year ago, Mom, says Chet under his breath. You should have known that. You're slipping. All right, let's go to that restaurant, huh? Says Vanessa. Let's, replies Chet, too excited. You have to stop this. Jessa pulls you aside. Hey mom, I had some ideas about your speech. Do you mind if we talk inside? He says. You don't have time for this. You can't let Chet and Vanessa get back together. Wait, no, you need to get home. Chet and Vanessa are irrelevant. You should hear her just about agree with whatever he says and start looking for a TV or portal or something. But look at Vanessa's smug little face. She knows she's got Chet wrapped around her finger. It makes you sick. If you go with Jessup, skip to chapter 36. If you go with Chat and Vanessa,
2: skip to chapter 37.
3: Chapter 12. Uh, okay, uh, Big Ape on Campus, I guess? You say. Hmm. He replies and switches on the TV. The screen is dark blue with a white outline of Harvard. You assume it's Harvard. You know the show is about the president of Harvard. A small outline of an orangutan walks into frame at the bottom of the screen. Scratches its butt, sniffs its finger, and walks out again. All the while, bad jazz plays, completed with nonsensical lyrics sung by the star of the show, you remember. Did he have it in his contract that they would let him sing? Ugh. You scoff. Don't be a smart aleck. The old man cuts. He moves a folding chair in front of the TV and, with a calmly assertive hand on your shoulder, forces you into it. You feel uneasy. The uneasy feeling is warranted, you learn, as the old man suddenly grabs the back of the chair and pushes you toward the TV. Hard. You throw your arms up to protect your face, and everything goes black. You open your eyes. You're in a very nice office. You've seen this before. It's one of the sets from Big Ape on campus. You feel... Harry? The shiny man and Jane have an argument. You call him the shiny man because sometimes when the light hits the hairless part of his head, it makes a great big glare. You love Jane. Jane takes care of you. They're arguing because they kissed and can't agree on what that means. Ugh, humans. You walk over to the shiny man's desk. Your long orange arms extend all the way to the ground and you slightly rest on your knuckles. It's weird how right that feels. You search the desk and see your reflection in the computer monitor. You're an orangutan! The old man has trapped you in the TV somehow. You've got to find a way to get back to the real world. And as long as you're in the TV, you're technically in Gustavus. And you do not intend to spend the rest of your life in Gustavus. You let out a panicked orangutan noise. See, even Molly agrees that you're a pig! cries Jane. She leaves in tears. The shiny man turns on you, screaming. You don't like the shiny man. All he does is shout at you. Wait, this isn't the shiny man. This is Bolton James. You know that. You've seen the show before, unfortunately. He's the president of Harvard. He knows the smartest people in the world. One of them must know how to get you home and get you human. He tried to explain the situation, but all he can manage is, oof. It doesn't have the impact you'd hoped. There are pens and paper on the desk. Ugh, stupid monkey. Yells the shiny man. Every instinct you have is screaming at you to express your displeasure with the shiny man right now. If you allow your animal instincts to take over and moon the shiny man, skip to chapter 44. If you
2: try to write a note to Bolton, skip to chapter 45. Chapter 13 You follow Leslie out of the bar.
3: He heads towards his car, a classic Cadillac. Did you really work for NASA? You pry. Why are you following me, kid? He shouts you down. You stop dead. I can teach you how to spearfish, you declare. You can. He lights up. I spearfishing, right? I'm not talking about wading through a river in rubber pants like a dandy here. Yeah, I spear-fishing, yeah. You keep up. Well, can you teach me right now? I don't know if you heard, but I've got some Swedish investors flying in tomorrow, and they sounded really impressed when I talked about spear-fishing. He says. Uh, Of course I could teach you right now. You smile. If you took the First Nations fishing technique course when you went to summer camp a few years ago, skip to chapter 15. If you did not take the First Nations Fishing Technique course when you went to Summer Camp a few years ago, skip to Chapter 16.
2: Chapter 14
3: You follow Bill out of the bar. He's heading into the woods. Uh, where are you going? You pry. Home. It's about half a mile that way. He answers, pointing ahead. He doesn't seem at all bothered or curious about you following him. I hear you see ghosts, you lead. Uh, Just one, he explains. My spirit guide. I think maybe he's a distant relative, but I'm not sure. Uh, Is he here right now? You ask, looking around the trees for a patch of air that looks particularly cold. Oh, it doesn't work that way, Bill goes on. He only comes in times of deep spiritual need. Like when your friend wants to learn spearfishing, you ask. No, that just came up in conversation, he says. I have other stuff going on, you know? Oh, right, you say embarrassed. So why was one who walks here this time? Oh, he wants to find my dad. I'm an orphan, he explains. Do you have a family? Yeah, actually, I kind of ditched them to go exploring, you sheepishly reply. Ah, I get that. Leslie can be pretty annoying, and I don't even have to live with him. Bill relates. I was going to watch Disco Volante, if you want to join me. It's Kevin McClory's third unofficial James Bond movie from 1995. You know, starring Timothy Dalton and Rene Rousseau. Great film. You have Disco Volante? You accidentally shout. How did you find that? I've looked, like, everywhere for it. It's out of print. One Who Walks found it for me at a thrift store in Anchorage when I was having an identity crisis last year. He says, you're not sure if he's joking or what. You begin to tell him that you'll join him. But then you think of your family. Ben staring at a blank spot on his wall, wondering where the TV is. Your mom assuming the worst, thinking you've been eaten by wolves or something. Bill's brief mention of family has inspired the minimum amount of responsibility in you. You politely decline and head back to the bar, where your aunt's van is parked. By the time you make it to the TV repair place, it's closed. Everybody is mad at you when you get back to the house. They annoy you just like you thought they would for the rest of the stay. It's Sunday evening when you finally get in the car to head home. Look what you did, honey. I always tell you not to draw on the windows, your mom chides. As the light from the street lamps hits your window, you see that the stick figure you drew on the way to Gustavus is still there, just faded a little. You buckle your seatbelt and breathe in the happy feeling of knowing that you have a full year between you and your next trip here. This path ends here.
2: To pick another path, return to Chapter 1. Chapter
3: 15 Leslie has a large piece of property just outside of Gustavus. He's a developer. Swears he built this town from nothing. You drive over in his Cadillac with the top down. He doesn't notice how cold you are. As you drive through the town, you talk about spearfishing. Have you ever done anything like this? You ask. Well, I've gone ice fishing. He says, but I always use a line. Where'd you learn to do this anyhow? There was an activities course at summer camp a few years ago. You say? Camp O'Canagan. They had ice fish in the summer? Yes. No, we, uh, used a wooden board with a hole in in our imaginations. You answer. "Uh Uh-huh, so you've never actually caught a fish this way. He says with a vague air of accusation. Do you want to impress the Swedes or don't you? You dodge. Well, I suppose you're my best shot he sullenly says. He peppers you with questions for the rest of the drive. Luckily, you remember the course well enough to answer them. The car pulls up to the house. It's big. Bigger than any house you've ever seen in Gustavus. Bigger than any house you've seen, period. He walks you into the foyer, where there's a big trophy case containing various plaques, medals, and pictures of him and John Glenn shaking important people's hands. He continues into the living room. The entryway is flanked by a suit of armor on one side and an astronaut sit on the other. You're pretty sure they're both real. He approaches a large panoramic window, grabbing a golf bag full of spears on the way. I've got an ice shack on the lake. Come on, let's go. He invites. You look out the window behind him and see a single, isolated shack on a large, frozen lake. You start to worry. Wait a minute, doesn't the lake start to thaw out around this time of year? You mention. Ah, no, that's weeks away. He assures. A few years back it last until June. He reluctantly walk toward the window. Okay, first, don't keep the spears in a golf bag. That's kind of weird. You command. Well, where am I supposed to keep them? He counters. Uh, just hold them, and you shouldn't have that many. Take one. You say, taking four pronged spears from the bag. And we're going to need a lure and two very heavy coats. Heavier than what you're wearing. And a uh, warm hat. "'Oh, you got a mouse in your pocket?' (laughs) He asks sarcastically. "'What?' you say. "'The idiom is lost on you.' "'I'm fine with what I'm wearing,' he says. He thinks you're challenging his masculinity. A few minutes later, you're walking on the ice, heavy coat-clad and carrying lures and the spear. You're not totally comfortable with the sound the ice is making as you step, but you put it in the back of your mind.' You get to the shack, and after the laborious process of cutting a hole in the ice, you begin your instruction. Okay, you want to lay prone in the ice. You start. Covering your head and looking through the hole, the idea is to block outside lights so that you can see fish more clearly. Now how does that work? You doubts? I I don't know, it just does. You don't explain? I think it has something to do with your eyes adjusting. It's what they taught me at camp. He rolls his eyes. So, when you see a fish checking out the lure, you want to very quickly prop yourself up and spear it! Uh, throw the spear? Yes. Well, if you want to lose it... You answer. If you want to keep it, I recommend a quick stabbing motion. You mind the motion to demonstrate? Huh. He says, lying down on the ice. Guess it's a good thing I brought that coat. You spend the next few hours fishing and talking. He tells you about being one of the first Americans to orbit Earth. You tell him about hanging out of the jungle video with Gordo. He's surprisingly easy to relate to. Before heading home, you exchange addresses and vow to become pen pals. When you make it back to your cousin's house, everyone is furious. They spend the rest of your trip mostly not talking to you. It's Sunday evening when you finally get in the car to head home. Look what you did, honey. I always tell you not to draw on the windows. Your mom chides. As the light from the street lamps hits your window, you see that the stick figure you drew on the way to Gustavus is still there, just faded a little. You buckle your seatbelt and breathe in the happy feeling of knowing that you have a full year between you and your next trip here. This path ends here. To pick another path, return to Chapter 1.
2: Chapter 16 Leslie has a large piece of property just outside of Gustavus.
3: He's a developer, swears he built this town from nothing. You drive over in his Cadillac with the top down. He doesn't notice how cold you are. As you drive through the town, you talk about spearfishing. "'Have you ever done anything like this?' you ask. "'Well, I've gone ice fishing,' he says. "'But I always use a line. "'Where'd you learn to do this anyhow?' "'There was an activities course at summer camp a few years ago,' you say. "'Camp O'Kanagan.' "'You're not lying. Technically, there was a spearfishing course. You just didn't take it. You took kayaking.' "'They had ice fish in the summer?' he asked. "'No, we, uh, used a wooden board with a hole in in our imaginations.' "'You lie. You remember seeing that during one of the kayaking lessons.' Uh "'Uh-huh, so you've never actually caught a fish this way.' He says, with a vague air of accusation, Do you want to impress the Swedes, or don't you? You dodge. Well, I suppose you're my best shot. He sullenly says. He peppers you with questions for the rest of the drive. Luckily, you improvise answers convincingly. The car pulls up to the house. It's big. Bigger than any house you've ever seen in Gustavus. Bigger than any house you've seen, period. He walks you into the foyer, where there's a big trophy case containing various plaques, medals, and pictures of him and John Glenn shaking important people's hands. He continues into the living room. The entryway is flanked by a suit of armor on one side and an astronaut suit on the other. You're pretty sure they're both real. He approaches a large panoramic window, grabbing a golf bag full of spears on the way. I've got an eye shack on the lake. Come on, let's go. He invites. You look out the window behind him and see a single, isolated shack on a large, frozen lake. You start to worry. Ooh, wait a minute, doesn't the lake start to thaw out around this time of year? You mention. Ah, no, that's weeks away, He assures. A few years back, it lasts until June. You reluctantly walk toward the window. A few minutes later, you're walking on the ice, golf bag in hand. You feel like a caddy. You're not totally comfortable with the sound the ice is making as you step, but you put it in the back of your mind. You get to the shack and after the laborious process of cutting a hole in the ice, you begin your instruction. Okay, it's pretty simple. You stand over the hole waiting for a fish. Now as soon as you see one, you throw the spear and you have to throw it with your shoulder. You say stretching to sound like you know what you're talking about. Your wrist and elbow shouldn't move at all. This ensures fluid motion fluid motion he mumbles as he mimes the action wait if I throw the spear how will I get it back you blink blankly a few times that's why we have to tie it to a rope you sputter uh, didn't think I had to explain common sense to you you roll your eyes for emphasis oh <laughs> right right he laughs trying to pretend he already knew that you spend the next few hours spearfishing you catch nothing Every time he throws a spear, he jumps a little. After one jump too many, cracks spread from the hole to the corners of the shack. You exchange panicked glances for exactly one second before the ice collapses into the lake. The walls on the shack coming down on top of you, your last thoughts are... "Uh, I can't believe I'm dying, Gustavus. This path ends here. To pick another path, return to Chapter
2: 1. Chapter 17 You follow the
3: man out of the diner. He gets in his car, which is nondescript and black, just like a suit. It's like he's in the FBI or something. You follow him through town. The black car goes down a street with a dead end. Beyond that, the woods. Going down that street would be a total giveaway that you're following him. So you park at a nearby drugstore and pretend to go in for just long enough that you see the man entering the woods. Following him is pretty easy from then on out. He is hard of hearing after all. You tread through the snow for about an hour before finally coming to a clearing. In the middle there is a small pool of pitch black liquid. The man walks in and vanishes. You look desperately around you for some explanation. Nothing comes. You take a tentative step toward the liquid. You feel anxious. You have a bad feeling about this, but you feel compelled to just keep going. With every step, a new wave of powerful emotion hits you. First was anxiety, then depression, fear, anger. You're shaking by the time you make it to the pool, but you're not even cold anymore. This feeling is the last thing you remember before you step in and go to another place. A place not of this world, and a place from which there is no returning. This path ends here. To pick another path, return to Chapter
2: 1. Chapter 18 You have a bad
3: feeling as to what might happen at the gate. Avoiding your cousin isn't worth that risk. You get back in your aunt's van and go on with your day. By the time you make it to the TV repair place, it's closed. Everybody is mad at you when you get back to the house. They annoy you just like you thought they would for the rest of the stay. It's Sunday evening when you finally get in the car to head home. Look what you did, honey. ''I always tell you not to draw on the windows,'' your mom chides. As the light from the street lamps hits your window, you see that the stick figure you drew on the way to Gustavus is still there, just faded a little. You buckle your seatbelt and breathe in the happy feeling of knowing that you have a full year between you and your next trip here. But it's not as sweet this time. For better or worse, you know this town isn't as boring as it seems.'' This path ends here. To pick another path, return to chapter one. Chapter 19. You can't abandon Alex. This trip is important. Plus, Max is going to be there, and who knows whose side he's on. This is weird. Why do you care about whose side Max is on? He's just a dumb character on the dumb show you're stuck in. But what if he hurts Alex? So what, she's also just a dumb character on the dumb show. You try to clear your head as you walk to the bus. There aren't any flights to Boston going out of the base, so you have to fly out of searchlight. On a long ride, you talk with Alex about the government, her mom, and Max. You are totally invested in all of it. Do you still think of him as your boyfriend? You ask. Oh, it's complicated. I haven't seen him much since they pulled him out of school, she says. You feel bad. You didn't mean to pry. You feel worse that you care about Watertown High. You have to keep reminding yourself that you are not a part of this world. The bus pulls up to Searchlight Airport. It's small, one runway, one plane, and no control tower. The only passengers are your schoolmates, an affluent group of one old woman and her three adult sons. They took a limousine now covered in desert sand to get here. The driver is loading their bags onto the plane. They look familiar. You think it's a cast of Bainbridge County? Unbelievable scoffs the old woman. There's no control tower. What's to stop us from crashing into another plane? I think the pilot takes care of that, Mom. The oldest son deadpans. Don't sass me, Chesney. You're not as charming as you think. She chides. The driver has finished loading their bags and waits by the limo. Belham, take care of the man, the old woman orders. Pelham, the youngest son, looks around awkwardly for a second before saying, Um, do you need anything, Uh, do you need anything water or, I meant pay him, the mother cuts in. Uh, Oh, right. (laughs) Pelham nervously chuckles. Duh. He fumbles for his wallet and pays the driver. The middle brother laughs at him. Pelham wanders over to you. Oh, student visit to Harvard, huh? He chats. I remember doing that. Of course, I took a private tour. Mother set it up. Very exciting. Hard to believe it's really happening. He pauses and something changes in him. A second ago, he was a buffoon. But now he knows something. Next words out of his mouth are deadly serious. Do you think this is real? What? You manage? Pelham, get on the plane! Calls his mother. Yeah, get on the plane, dummy! Apes the middle brother. With that, the buffoon is back. Oh, sorry, mother's calling. He says running toward the plane. Uh, that was odd. Says Alex. You don't want to give away how freaked out you are. Ooh, you think he knows where your mom is? You joke. Alex smiles. Shut up and get on the plane. You board the craft and take your seat. You're a few rows behind the Bain bridges. Halfway through the trip, something interesting happens. A flight attendant is walking the drinks cart toward the front, and the same Bellham is walking toward the back. They meet right next to your seat. Um, I have to use the the bathroom, Bellham says. You'll have to go back to your seat and wait for me to pass you. I'm afraid the aisle won't be clear for you until then. The attendant responds, Yeah, but I have to go to the bathroom, so I'm I'm just going to squeeze by. Pelham retorts before attempting to force himself into the single inch of space between the cart and your seat. A scuffle ensues. At one point, the fool tries to climb over the cart. Finally, he says, You know what, I'm just going to go back to my seat and uh, wait for you to pass me. At some point in the middle of this, he slipped a note onto your armrest. You read and pocket it before Alex notices. It said one word. Kirkland. He spends the rest of the flight with his back to you. He doesn't even go to the bathroom. You land at Logan International Airport. You check into your hotel. You take a basic tour of the Harvard campus. Nothing particularly interesting happens. You get the distinct feeling that you're in a montage. The tour ends in a park. Or at least pauses for lunch. You're right on the edge of the river that runs through campus. The Charles. Alex nudges you and points to a boathouse across the water. Alex nudges you and points to a boathouse across the water. That's the new boathouse, she whispers. Notes we found on your dad's computer say the lab is underneath there. Isn't the river underneath there? You reason. That would make it a pretty good hiding place, I guess, she counters. Come on, let's go. You want to help Alex, but you also really want to find out what Kirkland means. If you go to the boathouse with Alex, skip to chapter 21. If you investigate the word
2: Kirkland, skip to chapter 22. Chapter 20
3: Your best shot at getting home is finding a portal here. You shake off the urge to go to Boston. That's Lee, not you. I'm not going to Harvard today, you declare. Alex looks stunned. What do you mean? She says. Lee, I need your help. If my mom's at Harvard, I can't find her without you. You struggle to think of a reason why you're staying. You remember the light you saw through the window. Oh, something's going on here today. You explain. I saw this bright light whizzing around the desert. I think they're testing alien tech again. You remember the first time you saw them testing alien tech? That was the night Alex and Max first kissed. You've never seen more than five minutes of the show, but you remember this because you were there. Oh, you're uncomfortable with all the leaf thoughts taking up space in your brain. The more I could find out about what the government is doing here, the better chance we'll have of finding your mom. You reason? Besides, you're Alexandra Pierce. When have you ever had trouble doing something on your own? She smiles at you. She's such a sucker for flattery. Okay, if you think that's for the best, she says. She gives you a hug and leaves for Boston. You set about searching the base. Getting out of school is easy. Anyone who would stop you thinks you're leaving for Harvard. Getting into the base's science labs is a little trickier. You swipe your dad's access card. He thinks you don't know that he keeps a backup in the false bottom of a Folgers coffee tin in the pantry. Like you wouldn't notice that he's never drank a cup of the stuff in your life. The card gets you in without problems. You weave your way through the labyrinthine halls of the most secretive research facility in America. This isn't your first rodeo but you still don't know exactly where everything is. In semi-secure areas, it's enough to act like you belong there. In secure areas, you have to be very careful to listen for footfalls and spend a lot of time ducking behind corners. Finally, you find the room you're looking for. Applied Sciences. You've never been in here before. It's where they keep all the goods. If you'd been caught anywhere else, you'd be reprimanded, but not much else. Your dad is one of the top scientists, after all. If you're caught here, well, You'll probably get killed. You slide your dad's access card in the automated lock at the door. It flashes red. You've never seen it flash red. You thought your dad had access everywhere. An alarm starts blaring. Unauthorized access attempt detected. Unauthorized access attempt detected. Repeats a calm voice over and over again on the PA system. This is bad. You need to leave quick, but you still think your best chance at getting home is in this room. And if the portal is in there, that would certainly be the fastest way out of here. If you try to run away before the guards arrive, skip to chapter 28. If you kick the door down to get into the room, skip to chapter
2: 29. Chapter 21 Yeah, let's go, you
3: say. You and Alex walk toward the bridge to get to the boathouse. But you're cut off by the tour guide, an obnoxious little dork in a sweater vest. Excuse me, ladies, the tour doesn't resume for another, oh, let me see, 30 minutes. Please sit and enjoy the picnic, he lectures. We were kind of hoping to get a look at the new old boathouse, Alex says. "'Oh, I'm sorry, that's not on the tour,' the guide recites. "'But you have an excellent view of it here from the park.'" (sighs) "'Right,' says Alex. "'It's just that we would really like to see the inside. My friend here is a bit of a rowing nut.'" She elbows you in the stomach. "'Oh, oh, oh, yeah. Did Trip Switzer really practice here?' You improvise, trying to sound as excited as possible. Every day at 4 a.m. The guide smiles. He loves Harvard history. You let out an enthusiastic squeak to sell your excitement. Well, I guess it could be our little secret. Hm. He agrees. But you've got to promise me you'll be back here within, um, 30 minutes. I can't believe we got away with that. You are awesome. Alex beams as he cross the bridge. Trip Switzer, where did you pull that name from? I saw it on a record board on the way here. I can't believe I remembered it. You explain. You're having more fun as Carly than you care to admit. You enter the boathouse. It's a big room with a pool with two indoor rowing tracks. Alex reaches into one of the water filters. Within seconds, the pool drains. She smiles at you. It's an airlock. You both get into the center of the empty pool. Alex presses a hidden button on the bottom of one of the rowing tracks. The glass cover slides over your heads, and the entire pool descends underground. After a few minutes, the pool stops and opens into a metal hallway lined with tanks occupied by alien bodies suspended in yellow liquid. Whoa! You gasp. We've never seen anything like this back home. Alex realizes. Cautiously, you walk down the corridor... Every step you take on the steel floor sounds like someone dropping an anvil. Seems like you're down here forever. At last, you round a corner and come to a door with a nameplate that reads Dr. Elizabeth Pierce. Alex looks for emotional support. You nod and open the door. The room is empty save for a desk with nothing on it. She left me again. Alex sighs. Hey, you don't know that. You comfort. She just could be, you know, a a lunch or something. Look at this room, she says. This is not the office of somebody who actively works here. This is the office of somebody who left their daughter enough clues to find them in Boston. And then left Boston before the daughter arrived. What are you guys doing here? Asks a voice from the doorway, giving you a fright. You turn around to see Max wearing a lab coat and looking quite nervous. Alex immediately attacks him pummeling his chest with open slaps. Where's my mom? She screams. What did you do to her? Max grabs Alex's arms to stop her from hitting him. I didn't do anything to her. She's somewhere safe. He says. What are you doing here, Max? You grill. Working for the enemy? Helping make people disappear? No, I'm, I'm not doing any of that. He defends. I got called up, just like Elizabeth. There was nothing I could do. Where is she now? Shouts Alex. was somewhere safe? Max answers vaguely. She was getting close to something she shouldn't have, so I helped her get out of here. Before she left, she told me to give you this. Max pulls out an old pocket watch from his lab coat. Alex starts crying. This belonged to my great-great-grandfather. It's been passed down since then. Mom always said it was going to be mine when I turn 18. She sobs. Max, you really are one of the good guys. That's what I've been saying this whole time, boss. He smiles. Now you gotta get out of here quick before anyone else sees you. Alex gives Max a long kiss. You look at your shoes. When she's done, she starts to run into the hall. Oh wait, calls Max. He takes out a pen and writes on her arm. This is a P.O. box, if you need to communicate with me, do it through here. They kiss again. You and Alex bolt down the hall back the way you came to the pool elevator, takes you back to the boathouse, but when you step outside, two security guards are waiting for you. It's been an hour and a half since you left the tour. You didn't realize how long you were underground, plus they think you drained the pool as a prank. They took you to the president of the school's office, sarcastically telling you what an honor it is to have him yell at you in person. You are now sit in the office and wait for him to arrive. You recognize him when he does. It's the main character from Big Ape on campus. He shakes his head at you for a full thirty seconds before saying, What is it with the youth these days and acts of aquatic tomfoolery? And from two people not yet enrolled in the school? Well, your application had better be mighty impressive if you want to attend Harvard, because if you think we tolerate these sorts of monkey shines, well, you've got another thing coming. During the speech, an orangutan emerged from behind the desk, made faces, and literally peed on the rug just as the man was finishing. Ah, says the president, straining to remain dignified. As you can see, I have some literal monkey business to attend to, so would you kindly leave my office and think seriously about never coming to my school again? You think better of telling him that an orangutan is an ape, not a monkey. The rest of the trip goes without incident. You're happy Alex can trust Max again, and you know that even though she didn't find her mom, she's out there somewhere, and she's safe. Yep, everything's wrapped up nicely. When you get on the plane, you get this weird feeling that you were supposed to do something. Weren't you trying to get home? Well, that's silly. You're getting on a plane to go home right now. Carly Orwell never has a troubling thought like that again. This path ends here. To pick another
2: path, return to Chapter 1. Chapter 22
3: You go ahead, you say, pausing to think of a reason why you'd stay. I'll keep lookout. If I see someone go in the boathouse after you, I'll let you know. You pat your purse, which you know houses your Nokia 9000 communicator. This show is written by a bunch of sellouts. Good thinking, says Alex. She heads toward the bridge to the boathouse, but is stopped by the tour guide, a pushy little dweeb in a sweater vest. While Alex talks her way across the bridge, you take the opportunity to slip away from the group. Kirkland, you think to yourself as you exit the park. What could it mean? You take out the map of the school you were given at the start of the tour. You look at the dorms. Adam's house, Lowell house, Kirkland house. Okay, where is it in relation to you? It's right behind you. I knew you'd come. You look up from your map to see who's talking. It's the guy from the airport, the Bainbridge, Pelham. You're not from here, he says. No, I'm from Nevada, you answer, even though he wasn't asking a question. Canada, I'm from Canada, I don't know why I said Nevada. I meant you're not from here, he clarifies, gesturing to the sky. I could tell from the way you recognized my family at the airport. And you said you're from Nevada because your character is from Nevada. If you're not careful, soon her thoughts will become indistinguishable from your own. Oh, well, how do you fight that? You ask? Any time you do something your character would do, just keep repeating to yourself, This is not who I am. This is not who I am. Works for me, but you won't need to do that. We're getting out of here fast. I'm not going to miss my chance again, he explains. You know a way out? There's this place in New York, they, they call it the Way Station. A few years back, a couple of scientists got stuck here, so they built a portal back to our world. But they realized that they weren't the first to get trapped here, just the first to find a way out. They knew that if they left, anyone who came here after them would be trapped for good. So they stayed behind, spread the word, let the other real people know that there was a way home. Alright, let's go. Oh, it's not that easy. It's going to take six hours to get there since we only can drive on established roads. Established roads? Places only exist here if they've been visited or referenced in the stories of one of the shows. Um... Everything else is just a void. We'll have to drive around that. Well, what happens if we drive into a void? Oh, well, we won't do that. But what if we did? Oh, we'd get Chuck Cunninghamed, and we don't want to get Chuck cunningham Who's Chuck Cunningham? You know, from Happy Days. He was Richie and Joni's older brother until Season 2, then he wasn't anything. He walked into a void, and he was never seen or heard from again. Just like Judy, Winslow, or my sister Wendy. So they vanished here, but how do we know they weren't real people and that's how they got home? We don't, but it's not worth the risk. Okay, no going into the void, so let's go to the way station. Remember, it's, it's six hours. You say that like it means something. You're only conscious when your show is on the air. If it gets canceled, you get canceled. And in between episodes, you sort of go on autopilot. Carly's going to take over and you won't get back in the driver's seat until next week's episode. Okay, so I, I still don't get why six hours. This is the Watertown High season finale. If you inexplicably leave during this episode, the show will have to justify that, which will probably mean writing you off. That's as good as being cancelled, so if you don't make it to the portal before the story of the episode ends, you will almost certainly cease to exist. Well, jeez, I might as well take my chance in the Void, then. I think the Waystation is your best bet. You weigh over the options in your head. The Waystation or the Void would definitely be the fastest way out of here, but they're both so risky, it might be better to play it safe. Inhabit the role of Carly Orwell until you get back to Area 51. You still think someone there might know how to get you home. If you go with Pelham to the waystation, skip to Chapter 25. If you take your chances in the void, skip to Chapter 26. If you keep your head down and go back to the desert, skip to Chapter 27.
2: Chapter 23 You shoot both men with a tranquilizer,
3: then take off out of the office. In the hallway outside, you spot a conveniently open air vent, Charge through. Crawling through the vent, you do your best John McClane impression. It sounds like an orangutan grunting. You take a turn that seems to lead to a dead end. A closer look reveals that it actually turns down at a 90 degree angle. Lean over to see how deep the vent goes. But your orangutan body doesn't handle like your old human one. You tip over and fall headfirst down the vent. You spend several seconds free falling before you're able to push against the vent walls instead of yourself. There's no way you can climb back up, so you slowly shimmy your way down. It takes a lot longer than you'd like. Your long hairy arms feel like they're on fire when you finally make it to the bottom. You crawl a little further, happy to be able to move horizontally again. You stop at a grate and peer through. You see a middle-aged blonde woman and a man in a military uniform pointing a gun at her. They're standing in a metal room. Looks like you're on a submarine. But that's impossible, the ventilation is attached to the school proper. Did you really think it would be this easy to get out, Elizabeth? The man asks. She stands frozen in fear. Using your powerful ape legs, you kick through the grate, directly into the man's face. You knock the man unconscious. You're on a TV show, so he should stay out for at least a thematically appropriate amount of time. The woman studies you for a moment. We do a lot of weird stuff in this lab, she says. I don't know if we made you super intelligent, or if you're an alien who just happens to look like an orangutan, or if this is some kind of Freaky Friday thing where you're a human in an ape's body. You're not the last one, but she's too busy looking over her shoulders to notice. But I have to go now. Things are about to get real bad for me. I would advise you not to stick around either. She runs into the hallway and around the corner to the left. You start to follow her, but soon hear the heavy footsteps of armed guards coming behind you. You turn around, using your arms as a kind of slingshot, launch yourself at the guards, taking them both out. The woman is nowhere to be found, so you retreat into the vents. You spend a few more hours scrambling through the metal tubes, looking for some way home. You don't find one, but you do find more and more evidence of shady government activity going on below the surface of Harvard University. You never make it home. But you do spend the next eight seasons dealing out hairy vigilante justice in the underground depths of Boston. This path ends
2: here. To pick another path, return to chapter one. Chapter
4: 24
3: You fire a tranquilizer dart at the man in the yellow suit. He goes down nice and easy. The second man holds up his hands. You point to the monitor. He lets out a surprised laugh. Uh, me too. (laughs) Well, not the orangutan part, but the trapped in a world that doesn't exist part? uh, Yeah. I'm Pelham Bainbridge on the show, but my real name is, um, my real hard to remember no no it's 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 randy mandarino I, i've been here too long i i do know a way back though and i i can take you there but we have to hurry you point to the body on the floor i'll leave him says randy once we're gone it, it won't matter you leave the office you hold randy's hand so that it looks like he's leading you around You're headed to the parking lot to get in his car, but Bolton sees and stops you just before you leave the building. Excuse me, where are you going with my monkey? He shouts. Be cool, Randy whispers through the side of his mouth. He turns to Bolton. Uh, Randolph Mandarino Animal Control, do you have a license for this primate? Um, no. He sighs. Then I'm going to have to take it back to HQ for processing. You can visit in three to five days. Oh, um, okay, says Bolton. Uh, can you give me a second to say goodbye to my monkey? He's an ape, but okay, says Randy. Make it quick. She is a girl, and thank you. Says Bolton, he takes a knee to talk to you at eye level. I, I know I haven't been the best owner lately. I've been talking to Jane and I've come to realize some things about myself. I had a hard time letting go when dad died. We didn't have the best relationship. And I think I took some of that leftover frustration and resentment out on you. I'm sorry. He gives you a hug. You try not to cry. You know that you just met him today. But it feels like this is a culmination of friendship that has been three seasons in the making. But you have to leave. You have to go home. I'm coming with you, Bolton declares. I'm not going to let some uptight government agency separate me from my ape. You feel a huge swell of pride. He's never called you anything but a monkey before. You have to snap out of this. Uh, you really can't do that, sir. Panics Randy. Well, who's going to stop me? Challenges Bolton. You have an idea. You tug on Randy's hand to get walking. You start toward the door and Bolton follows you. You stop. You screech at him. You tell him, Molly. Bolton agrees. He doesn't understand. You pound the floor and bare your teeth. Randy gets the plan. Uh, sir, that's a sign of aggression from the ape. I I need you to back away, he says. Bolton looks hurt. I know this is all I deserve, but I'm sorry, he says. You fight the tears as you pretend to try to bite him. He jumps back. Just go, you stupid human, you think to yourself. Can't you see him a dangerous animal? I love you, Molly, he says before running away. You bare your teeth and pound your chest. I'll miss you, you think? You curl up in the passenger seat of Randy's car. You not being able to talk makes him uncomfortable with the silence, so he talks endlessly. He tells you the rules of the universe. You die in here, you die in real life. Your show's canceled, you die in real life. In between episodes, you go to sleep and the character takes over. If you let the character take over while you're awake, it'll stay in control and you'll forget yourself. He tells you the story of the place you're going. It's called the Way Station. It's a big interdimensional portal in the basement of a diner in New York. It was built by some scientists who got trapped here and realized they had a responsibility to help others get home instead of just leaving themselves. They avoid cancellation death by crossing over with as many shows as possible. They've become untethered from anyone's show. As long as this universe survives, so will they. He tells you his own personal story. He read a cursed television owner's manual and got sucked into the last episode of Bainbridge County when it was a regular TV show. That was 20 years ago. He's tried to escape every time he's woken up for a TV movie, but those are few and far between. You didn't even know there were other Bainbridge TV movies. His voice lilts a little, telling the story. He stops talking so that he won't start crying. The rest of the drive goes by quickly but quietly. You arrive just as the sun is starting to set. You're in Manhattan. Randy parks the car in a garage and tells you the place is about a block away. You see your destination, a vaguely familiar looking diner with the big sign that simply says restaurant. Inside Randy walks directly to the counter, holding your hand again so it's clear that the orangutan that just walked into the diner is with him. I will have the Mongolian beef, he orders. Of course, says the owner of the diner, sliding two cups of water in front of you. It'll just be a few minutes. Pelham lifts his water to reveal the napkin underneath. It's a note. It says, Men's Room, Center Stall. Tap the wall three times. He leads you into the men's room and into the center stall. You go right after me, he instructs. He sits on the toilet and taps the walls three times. One, two, three. The toilet flushes and the floor goes out, sending you both careening down a steep and twisting slide. So much for going after him. You fall deeper and deeper until Randy is deposited on a pile of pillows too thin to fully soften the blow. Luckily, he breaks your fall nicely. It's pitch black, but Randy seems to know where to go. He leads you down a hall and through a door. On the other side, you find a group of men in lab coats scribbling on clipboards. The walls are lined with what you can only describe as science towers—those weird metal monoliths you always see in movies that seem to have big rolls of tape inside. At the center of it all stands the portal, an eight-foot-tall semicircle with a pulsing field of blue energy in the middle. One of the scientists addresses you: "Welcome to the Wave Station. It's uh, pretty simple—you just walk through the portal, and you come out back on the correct side of the TV." kind of feels like there should be more to explain, but that's about it. How about the limerick? There once was a doctor from Sicily. We, we get it, doctor, we get it," interjects Pelham. Well, this is goodbye. You nod thankfully. Randy walks into the portal. You expected him to be more excited about going home, but his expression seemed more like that of a man sinking into his bed after a very long day. You guess it's smart not to waste time here. You step into the pulsating blue yourself. Everything goes black. TV's ready, calls a voice from the distance. You open your eyes. You're in the repair shop, sitting in the folding chair. The middle-aged man stands behind the counter. You look at him, dumbfounded. TV's ready, he says again. Uh, where's the old guy, you ask. The middle-aged man pauses for a second. You saw him too? He fumes. He looks furiously around the room. Really, Dad? You're an open book to anyone that walks through that door, but your own son. Oh... What are you talking about? You say. You saw the ghost. He says flatly. You know, you're the 16th customer that he's appeared to, and I haven't seen him for a second since he died skipped every birthday I ever had, and doesn't consider that unfinished business? Now, how to sell this place, move somewhere warm. The windows rattle. Yeah, I've heard that a million times. Either show yourself like a man or leave me alone. Can I just pay for the repair? You ask. You give him your aunt's money and leave the shop. You drive back to your cousin's house. You feel cold without fur. Or maybe it's because you're in Alaska, it's hard to tell. You pull up to the house and your uncle brings a TV in. Your cousin runs up to you with a smile a mile wide on his face. You made it! He exclaims. You made it in time for the BVN crossover, are you excited? Excited? You repeat, but you stop yourself before saying your next thought out loud. You see the childlike joy on your cousin's face. You'd have to be a real jerk to come in and squash in the name of what? Good taste? Oh, just shut up and watch the shows, you think to yourself. Don't be so insufferable. Yeah, I'm excited, you finally answer. You watch the shows with your cousin and have a good time. Afterward, he even lets you tell him about the far superior British show that Big Ape on Campus is based on. Maybe this won't be such a long weekend after all. This path ends here. To pick another path, return to Chapter 1.
2: Chapter
4: 25
3: You rest your head on the slightly vibrational glass of Pelham's passenger side window, watching the landscape of TV Boston pass you by. You see Cheers. You see Sabrina the Teenage Witch's aunt's taking a walk. Huh. St. Elsewhere Hospital. What a strange day this has been. As the drive goes on and the sights get more dull, you start to think about what Pelham said about ceasing to exist. How much longer till we get there? You ask anxiously. We're almost out of the city now, he says, eyeing the clock. Traffic's better than I thought. We should make it in about five hours. Bing, bang, boom. He grins confidently. He's trying to make you feel secure. It's not working. You sit in silence for a bit. TV Boston becomes TV Rural Connecticut. It's about as interesting as rural British Columbia. What do you mean when you said, before I miss my chance again? You ask. What are you talking about, kid? He finally answers. Outside Kirkland House, you said you had to get to the way station before you missed your chance again. You explain. He doesn't respond. A minute passes. Finally, you say, How long have you been in Bainbridge County? He swallows a thought and then says, I was sucked into my TV October 5th, 1978, the last episode of the original Bainbridge County show. Since then, there have been five TV movies, including this one. Each time I wake up a little older, playing a character a little dumber, a little more certain that people in the real world have forgotten I ever existed. He pauses, then sort of laughs. Did you know the last Bainbridge County was in 1985? I couldn't tell you how surprised I was to see almost 15 years had gone by this time. I didn't even know there were other Bainbridge County TV movies. You confess. Before your time, I guess. He sighs. The rest of the drive goes by quickly, but quietly. You arrive in Manhattan just as the sun is starting to set. Pelham parks a car in a garage, then tells you the place is about a block away. You nervously check your watch during the brisk walk to your destination. A familiar-looking diner with a big sign that simply says, Restaurant, on the outside. Inside, Pelham walks directly to the counter. You stumble behind. We'll have the Mongolian beef, he orders. You laugh. A place like this isn't gonna have... Of course, says the owner of the diner, sliding two cups of water in front of you. It'll just be a few minutes. Philhelm lifts his water to reveal the napkin underneath. It's a note. It says, Men's Room, center stall. Tap the wall three times. I'll go first, he says. Noticing that you're having a bit of trouble keeping up, he puts his hand on your back and guides you into his seat at the counter. Wait one minute, then follow. You sit at the counter confused. This is not what you expected. All you could think is, is the Men's Room stall the portal? When it feels like enough time has passed, you step toward the restrooms at the back of the restaurant. You feel conspicuous going into the men's room, so you make too big a show of trying to open the women's room door and pretending it's locked. The illusion is ruined when a woman walks out and gives you a strange look. Your eyes drop to the floor, embarrassed. You head into the men's room. No one notices or cares. You sit in the stall and tap three times. One, two, three. The toilet flushes and the floor goes out, sending you careening down a steep and twisting slide, deeper and deeper until you're deposited on a pile of pillows too thin to fully soften the blow. This way, calls Pelham. It's too dark to see, so you follow his voice. He leads you to a doorway. On the other side, you find a group of men in lab coats scribbling on clipboards. The walls are lined with what you can only describe as science towers. Those weird metal monoliths you always seen in movies that seem to have big rolls of tape inside. At the center of it all stands the portal. An eight foot tall semicircle with a pulsing field of blue energy in the middle. One of the scientists addresses you Welcome to the wave station. It's uh, pretty simple. You just walk through the portal and you come out back on the correct side of the TV. Kind of feels like there should be more to explain, but that's about it. How about the limerick? There once was a doctor from Sicily. We, we get it, doctor. We get it. Interjects Pelham. Well, this is goodbye. You are not going to come out of the same TV I did? You ask. Did you get sucked into the TV in my living room in Poplar, Montana? He asks. Oh, no. You answer. P- probably not, then. Oh, I guess I just assumed that we both got here the same way. Okay. Well, goodbye. Pelleham walks into the portal. You expected him to be more excited about going home, but his expression seemed more like that of a man sinking into his bed after a very long day. You guess it's smart not to waste time here. You step into the pulsating blue yourself. And everything goes black. TV's ready! calls a voice from the distance. You open your eyes. You're in the repair shop, sitting in the folding chair. The middle-aged man stands behind the counter. You look at him, dumbfounded. TV's ready, he says again. Uh, where's the old guy, you ask. The middle-aged man pauses for a second. You saw him too, he fumes. He looks furiously around the room. Really, Dad, you're an open book to anyone that walks through that door but your own son. Oh... "'What are you talking about?' you say. "'You saw the ghost,' he says flatly. "'You know, you're the 16th customer that he's appeared to, "'and I haven't seen him for a second since he died, "'skipped every birthday I ever had, "'and doesn't consider that unfinished business? You now how to sell this place, move somewhere... warm.'" The windows rattle. "'Yeah, I've heard that a million times. "'Either show yourself like a man or leave me alone.'" "'Can I just pay for the repair?' You ask. You give him your aunt's money and leave the shop. On the drive to your cousin's house, you think of all the different shows that had to be connected to each other for a place like The Waystation to exist. All those voices working together to create one cohesive universe. You always thought network TV was a big heap of garbage. But collaboration on that level is kind of spectacular. You pull up to the house and your uncle brings the TV into Ben's room. You mix small talk with your mom and aunt for a bit in the living room, and then you say, You know, I think I'm gonna go watch the BVN crossover with Ben. Your mom's eyes go wide in shock. Is that okay? You ask. Oh, by by all means, sweetheart, she says. Your mom and your aunt exchange impressed looks as you head down the hallway to your cousin's room. You see him sitting on the floor, solemnly picking through the TV guide. Hello, when does the show start? You ask. I thought you only watched black and white movies with subtitles. He coldly replies. You didn't realize how much you hurt him by being dismissive earlier. "Eh, I'll watch anything that's good. You reply. And someone told me that the shows tonight are really good. His face lights up. He tells you in great detail the history of the three shows. Maybe the next three days won't be so bad. This path ends here. To pick another path, return to Chapter 1. Chapter 26 You pedal as hard as you can. Pelham wouldn't take you to the void, but at least he showed you where the blank parts on the map are. The nearest one is five miles away, you had to steal somebody's bike to get there. You pass Cheers, which means you've got about a mile to go. You enjoy the sights of TV Boston. Since you got here, you've been so concerned with getting home that you never stop to think about how amazing this is. You see Sabrina the Teenage Witch's aunt's crossing the street. You see St. Elsewhere Hospital. You don't even want to think about the implications of that. Before you know it, you're at the edge of the void. Behind you, one of the biggest cities in America goes about its business. Somehow unaware of this giant swath of nothing right in front of you, a few people even walk in and disappear. You guess they'd be extras on the show. Well, standing here all day isn't going to get you home. You came here to do something. You take one last breath and step into the void. This path ends here. To pick another path, return to Chapter 1.
2: Chapter 27, 11 years have passed since your student visit to Harvard.
3: When you got back to Area 51, you dedicated your life to finding a way into other universes. In the real world, this proved popular with audiences, so popular in fact that you spun off into your own series. This meant you survived the cancellation of Watertown High, but also ensured that a portal home would always be conveniently out of reach. If you find it, there's no show. But today is going to be different. Today the show's on your side. It's the series finale. You're in a doom buggy being chased by government agents, also in a doom buggy. Yeah, come at me, you white-coated wasters. you taunt. ah, do you think that's a good idea Lee? worries Tony Tony's driving the buggy. He moved here from New Jersey in season three. It's a bit of a hackney premise, but you have to admit he's a capable sidekick. The G-Men following you are shooting madly, trying to stop you with guns, both conventional and laser. They'll never hit you. Not on the series finale. That's not how this ends. They might hit Tony. You finally see what you're driving toward. The government has constructed a large portal at the mouth of a cave deep in the desert. It looks just dissimilar enough from a Stargate for BVN to avoid a lawsuit. Something's wrong. It's not turned on. It's supposed to be a doorway to another dimension but instead it leads to the back of a shallow cave. Tony slams on the brakes, skidding through the empty portal and stopping barely in time to avoid crashing into the rocky wall. The science team working on the portal wave wildly, trying to stop the G-men and the buggy from coming any closer. The boot-up process has already begun. The portal turns on at the precise moment the government craft is passing through, severing it in the middle. The agents of the back half of the buggy disintegrate into the active portal. The agents in the front survive a gruesome, but not deadly, crash as the rear end of their ride ceases to exist. Why won't it work? Screams a scientist running toward you. Everything that goes through just disintegrates. I don't understand. We built it to exact specifications. Checked every calculation. Why won't it work? You stare at the portal. A giant metal ring with a glowing, buzzing pink field of energy in the middle. You don't know why it's not working, but you like your odds. It's waiting for me, you declare. You step towards it. Tony stops you. I'm going with you, he says. Tony, I don't think- We don't know what's on the other side. You really think I'm gonna let you go through there by yourself, he says with a roguish smile. You take his hand, not as a romantic gesture and not to make either of you feel more secure, but because he's probably about to die and he doesn't deserve to face that alone. You step through the portal, Everything goes black. TV's ready! goes a voice from the distance. You open your eyes. You're in the repair shop, sitting in the folding chair. A middle-aged man stands behind the counter. You look at him, dumbfounded. TV's ready! He says again. Uh, where's the old guy? You ask. The middle-aged man pauses for a second. You saw him too? He fumes. He looks furiously around the room. Really, Dad? You're an open book to anyone that walks through that door, but your own son. Oh... What are you talking about? You say. You saw the ghost. He says flatly. You know, you're the 16th customer that he's appeared to, and I haven't seen him for a second since he died, skipped every birthday I ever had, and doesn't consider that unfinished business? Now, to sell this place, move somewhere... warm. The windows rattle. Yeah, I've heard that a million times. Either show yourself like a man or leave me alone. Can I just pay for the repair? You ask. You give him your aunt's money and leave the shop. You get a strange feeling as you drive through Gustavus. You spend so long trying to get back here, but it doesn't seem right. More than a decade in the TV has changed you. You never realize how much you had come to think of that place as home. You pull up to your cousin's house. You know the people greeting you inside are your family, but they feel more like strangers. You miss being Lee and the friends you made inside the idiot box. You're in a bit of a daze until your cousin says the four magic words. Wanna watch Watertown High? Your face lights up. This path ends here. To pick another path, return to Chapter 1.
2: Chapter 28 If the portal isn't in this room,
3: you'll be killed for sure. You can't take that risk. You bolt down the hallway, running. Running as fast as you can, you come to... A dead end. No, you're certain this was the way out. The blaring alarm reminds you that you do not have time to stop and think. You turn around and run. You're sure you're on the right path when an armed guard rounds the corner, pointing some kind of ray gun right at you. He turns and speaks into his walkie-talkie. The leak has been found in hallway two seven eight. I repeat, two seven eight. He turns back to you and shouts, Stop or I'll. You don't let him finish. You sly tackle him. Your foot connects directly and painfully with his shin. He goes down and in a surprisingly fluid motion, you get up and keep running. This sort of thing is easy in TV physics. A few more twists and turns lead you to the exit. You burst through the double doors into the desert outside. You breathe in free air. But when the sun clears from your eyes, you see a semicircle of completely identical armed guards with ray guns trained on you. TV physics won't help you now. This never happened, says one of them before pulling the trigger. This path ends here. To pick another path, return to Chapter 1.
2: Chapter 29 You take a step back and give the door a good kick. Somewhat to your
3: surprise, it swings right open. Wait, of course it did. That always works on TV. And you're on TV. No time to stand around feeling good about yourself. You rush into the room to look for some way home. A number of fantastic devices are conveniently lined up on tables and labeled. Let's see, force field generator, matter exploder, death ray, time machine, genesis bomb... Ice Knight, ah, there it is! Interdimensional Gateway Creator. It looks like an ordinary button-operated flashlight. You pick it up and the lens spins ever so slightly. Beneath the spot it was sitting, you see a card, with the name of the device, the date of completion, and a list of scientists who worked on the project. Several are ominously crossed off. Wasting no further time, you point it at the wall and press the button. Nothing happens. You press it six more times. Still nothing. You try to screw the bottom to check the batteries, and instead you find a keyhole. You're starting to panic. The alarm seems to be growing louder, but even over the sound of that, you hear running from the outside hallway. You grab two force field generators, which are large metallic cones, and place them at either side of the doorway. The glowing purple force field goes up just in time for one of your attackers to plow face first into it. It holds them off, but you're going to have to think of another way out of here. You eye the Matter Exploder. This one looks like a gun with a humongous barrel. You fire the Matter Exploder at the wall opposite the exit. Lucky for you, the wall led directly outside. You pocket the note card for the portal generator and don the invisibility poncho you didn't see hanging on the coat rack before heading out. Safely invisible and wandering around the desert in Area 51, you check the list of scientists on the note card. One of them must have the key. There are only two names that haven't been crossed off. Dr. Logan Cavanaugh, and Dr. Gerard Overchuck. If you look for Dr. Cavanaugh, skip to Chapter 30. If you look for Dr.
2: Overchuck, skip to Chapter 32. 30. Dr. Cavanaugh seems like the way to go, but how are you going to
3: find him? You look around the base. Everything looks so normal. You see houses, nondescript municipal buildings, a runway to test experimental extraterrestrial aircraft, you know, all the normal stuff. After walking around for a few minutes, you see something you didn't expect, a baseball diamond. There's a game being played right now. The small section of bleachers are packed full. You wonder how many people are on this base and how many of them are actually playing in this game. Still wearing the invisibility, Poncho, you walk to the field and sneak into the scorekeeper's booth. They have a piece of paper with names, numbers, and positions of everyone on the field. Bingo! Logan Cavanaugh, number 99, shortstop. You look up at the field. There's 99, right between 2nd and 3rd. You spot a bit of scrap paper and a pen. You're careful to make sure the scorekeeper's back is turned to you when you take it under your invisibility, Poncho, and write a note to Dr. Cavanaugh explaining the situation. You end up with instructions to go somewhere, anywhere, alone after the game if he can help you. You begin your journey to number 99. You're terrified that someone will notice your footprints in the dirt as you track across the diamond. You do your best to make as little impact as possible, but it doesn't seem to matter. Everyone is so caught up in the game they don't notice. You check the scoreboard as you walk. It's the scientists versus the pilots. Creative names, guys. Good job. The pilot's lead, five to two. Finally, you've made it to the shortstop position. The whole way here, you've been thinking of a way to slip the note into his pocket, and you think you've figured it out. You're ready to make your move. You take the note and put it in his... Hmm. His pants only have pockets on the butt. That feels a bit too familiar. You freeze up for a moment, unsure of what to do. Should you put it in his shirt? No, what if it falls out? Ah! You spy that weird little pocket that baseball gloves have for some reason. You'll have to fold it a few times, but the note should fit snugly in there. You play the delicate game of operation needed to slide the note into the glove pocket unnoticed. It's in! You stand straight up elated in your success. That's when a line drive beams you right in the head. Nobody notices your tracks in the dirt, but they certainly notice when a ball ricochets off of nothing in the middle of the game. The hit knocks you out cold. You never wake up. The United States government makes sure of that. This path ends here. To pick another path, return to Chapter 1.
2: Chapter 31 You duck through the seedy
3: back alleys of downtown Atlantis. The same cartoon physics that lets you keep breathing from an overturned fishbowl keep you from floating to the surface and out of the underground city. You dare not look behind you at the legion of different generations of maestro sharks chasing you. You come to two alleys leading in opposite directions. Okay, which way Gordo? You bark into your communicator. Gordo looks panicked. Uh, I, I don't know, he confesses. I think you're on a deleted scene. This, this wasn't in the broadcast version of this episode. On the tiny view screen, you can make out Gordo frantically looking through the animation section of Jungle Video. He turns to shout out the clerk. I told you a thousand times! You should stock special editions! Bonus features! I need... I need bonus features! You feel something in the water around you. A current. The sharks are on their way. You dart left. No time for Gordo to find that deleted scene. No time, Gordo, going left, you inform. What is <sighs> sources say that's a dead end <sighs> he screams. You come to a dead end. Why did you waste time looking for a deleted scene instead of telling me that? <laughs> Your rage. It wasn't canon, he sheepishly replies. The sharks are on you now. Now, did you really think you could outrun a group of sharks underwater? Taunts the original Meister Shark. Yeah, who do you think you are? Daryl Dolphin? Spits 1979 Meister Shark. <laughs> yeah, Daryl Dolphin, parrots Prodigy Piranha. You take offense to the statement. You hate dolphins. Why are you protecting Jessup? You demand. He only came here to kill people where he knew he can get away with it. He's a psychopath. Jessup only kills land dwellers, explains Puppet Maestro Shark. Yeah, we don't care about land dwellers, continues Little Maestro Shark. Except when they go all Toby Maguire and start spreading ideas we don't like, says the not gritty future Maestro Shark. Ideas like that do us no good, says Master Shark, 1985. No good at all. Oh boy, I really want to eat this guy. I hope the Atlanteans come to talk me out of it. <laughs> Quips the gritty future master Shark. They all laugh before taking turns devouring you. This path ends here.
2: To pick another path, return to Chapter 1. Chapter 32 Dr. Oberchuk is the way to go. But
3: how are you going to find him? Look around the base. You see houses, a baseball diamond, administration buildings... Ah! There it is. One of the buildings has a large sign reading records. You stride into the building, still in the invisibility, Poncho. The front door was unlocked. But you doubt you'll have much luck further on. You're in a small lobby. There are a few chairs... One door, a front desk with a receptionist, and a guy in a lab coat flirting with the receptionist. The guy's ID card is just sitting on the desk. Smooth as silk, you swipe the card. You've got a feeling your dad's card has been flagged. As quietly as possible, you sneak through the door into a warehouse filled with boxes and boxes of records. There is also a single computer at a small desk. You hope the digitization is going well. You sit at the desk and slide the pilfered ID card through a reader next to the monitor. A window opens on the screen with a single line of text reading Welcome, Mick. And a search bar. You type Oberchuk and hit enter. A number of results appear, most of them projects that he worked on. The portal generator, the time machine, the food synthesizer. The descriptions for all of them say classified at this clearance level in big, bold, menacing letters. The only non classified item is the one you're looking for personal profile. There you find his address, hobbies, age, weight, height, eye color, favorite TV shows, and drink preference. You memorize the first one and leave the facility, dropping the ID next to a confused mick on the way out. You find Oberchuck's house. It's small and kind of separated from the rest of the base. The door is ajar. There's trash everywhere, one wall is covered with newspaper clippings and bits of string connecting them. In the middle of it all, a man sits in a ratty old chair. He has long hair, but he's starting to lose it. He looks more like a bouncer than a scientist, except for the dirty lap coat. He holds a key in the air. I'm glad you found your way here, he says, leaping out of the chair. He runs over and pulls the invisibility poncho off you. Finally, someone else who knows the truth. You know who I am? you ask shakily. You look like Carly Orwell, best friend and sidekick to that nosy little Alexandra Pierce. He answers. But I think we both know that's not who you really are. Right. You say. Because this isn't real. It's a TV show. He continues. Yeah. You shout. Are you trapped here too? Unfortunately not. Overchuck explains. I'm technically supposed to be here. I was created as part of Watertown High's backstory. You've never seen me on the actual show, but the writers have it written down somewhere that I work here, so here I am. How did you figure this out when no one else here did? You say. I've got some theories about that, he says. I think I'm based on a real Dr. Urbachuk from your universe. Someone who knows a thing or two about alternate dimensions. That would make the most sense. All the writers deliberately gave me fourth-wall awareness to monitor continuity from within the universe. Great. All I want to know is, can this flashlight take me home? Yes, he answers. I built it to see into other worlds, I've heard rumors of a freestanding portal somewhere out east, but there's far too much unexplored land between here and there. I'd never make it, so I built my own, but I can never get it to work until now. Why? You worry? The multiverse is like space, it's very big mostly empty. Without turning the generator to the right frequency, all I can do is open a portal to empty space. But with you here, it should automatically tune to the frequency of your universe. When I picked it up, the lens turned a little without me touching it. You remember? His eyes light up. Give me the flashlight, he commands. You toss it to him, puts the key in the back, points it at a wall, and turns it on. It creates a portal on the wall, about five feet in diameter. You can see their TV repair shop on the other side. You run toward it. Wait, shouts Overchuck. He shuts down the portal and you run face first into the wall. Your nose bleeds. Oh! You yell. Sorry, I was just saving your life. He condescends. Stand here and look again. You stand next to Overchuck as he turns the device back on. You see the TV repair shop again. This time, you've noticed something. It's huge. Cavernously, monstrously huge. Why is it so big? you ask. Hmm... Oberchuck ponders. Perhaps it's because your universe is much larger than this one. In order to fit here, you would have to have been shrunk. That's correct, and you go through this portal now, one of two things will happen. One, you will return to your universe three inches tall.
2: Hmm.
3: Two, you will rapidly return to your normal size, becoming far too large for the portal on the other side. Severing whatever part of you goes through first. He turns off the portal again. Okay, so what do we do? You ask. If it's the first option, there's nothing we can do. I suppose I could try to invent a rebiggining ray. He thinks aloud. But no, re technology is years away. If it's the second option, we'll just need to create a bigger aperture so that you won't get stuck. Well, how do we do that? You ask. He smiles knowingly. Soon, you're flying over the Nevada desert in a rickety old two-seat airplane. The portal opener is strapped to the side, pointing at the ground. Once we get high enough, I'll give you the signal. Turn on the portal, and jump! He shouts over the sound of the engine. Remember, the flashlight is attached to the plane, so the portal is going to be moving. It'll be big enough that you should make it if you jump right away. But if you wait too long, you'll be nothing more than a patch of red sand in the desert. What happens when I go through the portal? Won't I be falling too fast? You ask. The process of crossing over should slow you down. I'm sure of it, he reassures. Mm, pretty sure. You don't like the way he said, pretty sure. Not one bit. Suddenly, the plane's radio comes to life in a burst of static. Dr. Oberchuck, on the order of the United States government, land your aircraft immediately. Oberchuck picks up the transmitter and responds, Tell Uncle Sam to bite me. Do you have any idea what you're doing? The voice comes back. Miss Orwell is one of the core characters holding this reality together. She serves as a good foil for Alex and adds some much-needed diversity to allow us to appeal to a wider audience. I thought you were the only one who knew this was a show. You yell? I am! Overchuck insists. Don't be so naive, old man. The voice on the radio scolds. Of course we know. Why do you think we behave like such monsters? The show needs a compelling villain. We only live as long as the show is on the air. With Lee, we could make eight or nine seasons. Without her, we've got one more Tops. If you jump out of that plane, you're killing all of us. Is he telling the truth? You ask. I don't know. Overchuck answers. But we're high enough now, I won't stop you if you still want to leave. You're not coming with me? Your universe already has an overchuck. One is enough for any universe. If you stay, skip to chapter 33. If you go, saving yourself, but potentially condemning everyone in this universe, skip to chapter 34.
2: Chapter 33
3: Land the plane You can't risk destroying this universe to save yourself. Overcheck lands the plane, and you go about living the rest of your life as Carly Orwell. You fake it for a while, and then her thoughts become your thoughts. And you forget that you were ever anyone else. You go on to have a number of adventures in Area 51. In Season 6, you find love. In Season 7, that love turns out to be an alien. But then, in Season 8, you realize that you're okay with that. You don't even realize it's happening when the show, and therefore your life, come to a dramatically satisfying ending after Season 9. This path ends here. To pick another path, return to
2: Chapter 1. Chapter 34 You turn on the portal and jump.
3: The wind wishes past you and it feels like you're flying. You tense up as you near the portal. Everything goes black. TV's ready, calls a voice from the distance. You open your eyes. You're in the repair shop, sitting in the folding chair. A middle-aged man stands behind the counter. You look at him, dumbfounded. TV's ready, he says again. Uh, where's the old guy? You ask. The middle-aged man pauses for a second. You saw him, too? He fumes. He looks furiously around the room. Really, Dad? You're an open book to anyone that walks through that door, but your own son. Oh. What are you talking about? You say. You saw the ghost. He says flatly. You know, you're the 16th customer that he's appeared to and I haven't seen him for a second since he died. Skipped every birthday I ever had and doesn't consider that unfinished business? Now to sell this place, move somewhere warm. The windows rattle. Yeah, I've heard that a million times. Either show yourself like a man or leave me alone. Can I just pay for the repair? You ask. You give him your aunt's money and leave the shop. You check the time. It's 6.45. Watertown High starts in 15 minutes. You hustle back to the house. You pull up in the driveway and honk the horn repeatedly. Come on, we gotta get this TV hooked up before seven. I don't want to miss Watertown High, you beckon. You're eager to see if it was actually you and the show. The whole family comes out to see. Come on, let's get in the house quick. You gesture to the TV. Your mom stares at you incredulously. You want to watch Watertown High, sweetheart? Uh, yeah, you answer. Is that so hard to believe? They all stare at you. We're wasting time, Ben. I know you don't want to miss it. This snaps him out of it. Oh, yeah! Dad, come on! We gotta get in the house! Ben squeals. Your uncle brings it in and hooks it up. It turns on just in time for the show. Ben smiles at you. See what I mean about the noise? You make a show of being annoyed with your cousin, but honestly, it's not a bad noise. You watch the show intensely waiting for Carly to appear. You try to hard your amazement when she does. She says all the things you said. She stays behind on the base like you did. You were really there. And then something odd happens. Carly shows up again at the end of the episode. She didn't leave the universe when you did. The man on the radio was lying. Show is going to be fine. That's when you notice an extra in the background of that final scene. It's Dr. Overchuck. He's so far away and out of focus that you're probably the only one watching who noticed him turn to the camera and wink. As the credits roll, you look at Ben and say, You know, this isn't such a bad show after all. This path ends here. To pick another path, return to Chapter 1.
1: This all sounds like an adventure for Sam McChesterfield. Except that Sam was trained for this kind of thing. But you have something better. You know all of Sam's training and what Sam does to beat the evil guys. You've got to get the watch back and save all of time. Oh, hey, wait, uh, you weren't supposed to hear that. That's for the next episode. What? <laughs> no, I'm not still frantically writing it at the last minute. Oh, you liked it, though? Well, I guess since you're here, I'll let you in on some more. How's this sound? You sit up in your bed. It was just a dream. Definitely one of your stranger ones. You look around and assess your current living situation. You're home from college for the summer, back in your old room. You look around at the posters that defined your high school years. Maestro Shark, a kid's cartoon that you and your friends quoted incessantly, and Sam McChesterfield, supernatural teen who saved the world. You look out of your window in the second story and see Hustle and Bustle in the street. That's right. It's the yearly neighborhood yard sale. Normally it's just neighbors bartering for each other's stuff, but every once in a while you find a true gem. You'll have to check it out. And that's just the beginning. You'll have to come back next month to hear the whole thing. Now get back to this month's episode, Trapped on Channel 2.
2: Chapter 36 You go with Jessup. He seems very interested in
3: himself. It shouldn't be too hard to break away and give yourself time to think. You enter Kirkland House and the first door you see inside. It looks like somebody's dorm room. Is this a dorm room? Why do you have a key? The thought is interrupted when he shuts the door behind him and points a silenced 9mm pistol at your stomach. Is that how I raised you? You snap. Of course not, that's your father. Luckily your father was a coward too. I bet you don't have the guts to pull that trigger. Uh Uh-oh. Why did you say that? You didn't mean to say that, it just came out of nowhere. Huh. He sneers. That's not what you said when you wanted me to take care of Emilio on our yacht trip through the Caspian. Yes, you were a mama's boy then and you're a mama's boy now. You cut. You desperately wish you could stop saying these things, but they come so naturally and the gun makes it a little hard to think. I dare you to shoot me. He does. Last thing you see is your son's face looking down on you. I want to thank you for what you left me in the will, he says. Very generous. This path ends here. To
2: pick another path, return to Chapter 1. Chapter 37 You tell
3: Joseph you don't have time for him right now. You tell Chet that you have more than enough time to eat lunch with him and Vanessa before leaving for your speech. Mom, this is a business lunch. Chet whispers. If you come with me, it looks like you don't have confidence in my ability to run the company. Oh, Chet. You say, full volume. You mustn't ever let pry get in the way of business. You lay it on real thick during the walk talking about how busy a single parent's life is, and how neither of them have time for anything else. Nothing stops their incessant flirting. You enter the hotel and spy a restroom. This could be a great way to get away from them and plan your way home. But you really hate the idea of losing your son to that harpy again. Not to mention that he's going into a business meeting with this distraction. Everything in your head is telling you to stop them, Except for that one little voice that says, "Gustavus." If you try and stamp Chat and Vanessa's rekindling, skip to chapter 38. If you go to the bathroom to you give yourself a chance to
2: think, skip to chapter 39. Chapter 38 Oh,
4: Chet.
3: I thought you got rid of those shoes, you judge. His face goes a little bit red. Yes, that's it. Destroy his confidence. He'll never have a chance with the girl. Ooh, it feels so good to give in to the voices in your head. You have found your place in this universe. You are Victoria Bainbridge, the exceedingly cruel and controlling matriarch of the Bainbridge family. can't imagine why you'd ever want to be anyone else, even if you could remember who else you would be. This path ends here. To pick another path,
2: return to Chapter 1. Chapter 39 Excuse me, Chet, I have to use the powder
3: room. You say? Don't make any decisions while I'm gone. You walk to the bathroom, making faces at the hotel's modern design. In your day, hotels at class. They didn't care about being hip. You try to stave off these old lady thoughts as you open the door to the restroom. You sit on the toilet and lock the stall door. Okay. You think? How do I get out of here? I need to find a portal or another TV. Let a TV work. did I see a few in the lobby? You hear the stall door next to you open, and then a man's voice. You jump. Get out of here! This is the woman's room. You shout. But you recognize the voice. It's your TV son, Pelham. But there's something different in the way he speaks. He doesn't sound like an idiot. Shut up and listen to me for a second. He commands. I know you're not Victoria Bainbridge. You got trapped here, same as I did. I can tell by the way you act. I know a way out. But you have to hurry, there's a place in New York. They call it the Way Station. You have to get there as soon as possible. I missed my chance before, and I'm not going to let that happen again. You need to come with me right now. This seems like your best chance. But years of running the most powerful family in the western United States has taught you to look for all the angles. You'd like to know more about this way before you commit to anything. If you leap on the opportunity to leave, skip to Chapter 40. If you demand more information, skip to Chapter
2: 41. Chapter 40 You
4: rest
3: your head on the slightly vibrational glass of Pelham's passenger side window, watching the landscape of TV Boston pass you by. You see Cheers. You see Sabrina the Teenage Witch's aunt's taking a walk. Huh. St. Elsewhere Hospital. What a strange day this has been. You sit in silence for a bit. TV Boston becomes TV Rural Connecticut. It's about as interesting as rural British
2: Columbia. Skip to Chapter 42. Chapter 41. Oh, you're trapped here too.
3: You force your words for the wall of the stall. How did you get stuck here? How do we get home? What happens if I die here? What happens if a show is cancelled? What happens if the TV I got sucked in is, is destroyed? He answers the question's rapid fire. Uh yes, I read a cursed owner's manual, there's a portal in New York. You die in real life, you die in real life, and I dunno, now are you ready to go? What kind of portal is it? Who built it? Are there other people trapped here? You fire back. You're not the type of woman to walk through portals willy-nilly. That type is liable to get herself disintegrated. Uh, I don't have time for this. I, I can't miss my shot again. Good luck. You're on your own, he says, shoving open the stall door. You hear a flurry of cameras shuddering. Out of my way, bites Pelham, rushing out of the bathroom. What's going on out there? You shout. Open the door cackle somebody. You open the stall to reveal a gaggle of paparazzi snapping photos. You suppose the head of one of the most powerful families in America going to the bathroom with her adult son might be considered news. America agrees, apparently. Almost instantly, your life becomes quite a hassle because of a constant barrage of questions about your son. No one suspects anything beyond a strange over-dependency, but still, the scandal takes up enough of your time that you have little left to plan an escape. The fact that Pelham simply vanished after leaving the bathroom at the Charles doesn't make matters any better. You try to prolong the scandal. Remember what Pelham said would happen if the show is cancelled. You die in real life. You figure you have until the end of the TV movie to make it home. But without anyone to guide and knowing only that the portal is in New York, your efforts prove fruitless. Meanwhile, in the real world, audiences react poorly to the odd direction Bainbridge County has taken. People tune out in droves and BVN suffers its greatest drop-off rate in the history of the network. No further TV movies are produced. This path ends here. To pick another path,
2: return to Chapter 1. Chapter 42 The rest of the drive goes by quickly, but quietly.
3: You arrive in Manhattan just as the sun is starting to set. Pelham parks a car in a garage, then tells you the place is about a block away. You nervously check your watch during the brisk walk to your destination. A familiar-looking diner with a big sign that simply says, Restaurant, on the outside. Inside, Pelham walks directly to the counter. You stumble behind. We'll have the Mongolian beef, he orders. You laugh. A place like this isn't gonna have- Of course, says the owner of the diner, sliding two cups of water in front of you. It'll just be a few minutes. Tell lifts his water to reveal the napkin underneath. It's a note. It says, men's room, center stall. Tap the wall three times. I'll go first, he says. Noticing that you're having a bit of trouble keeping up, he puts his hand on your back and guides you into his seat at the counter. Wait one minute, then follow. You sit at the counter confused. This is not what you expected. All you could think is, is the men's room stall the portal? When it feels like enough time has passed, you step toward the restrooms at the back of the restaurant. You feel conspicuous going into the men's room, so you make too big a show of trying to open the women's room door and pretending it's locked. The illusion is ruined when a woman walks out and gives you a strange look. You turn your chin up and make a humph noise, hoping that if you project enough confidence, you could somehow convince onlookers that you meant to do all this. You head into the men's room. No one notices or cares. You sit in the stall and tap three times. One, two, three. The toilet flushes and the floor goes out, sending you careening down a steep and twisting slide deeper and deeper until you're deposited on a pile of pillows too thin to fully soften the blow. This way, calls Pelham. It's too dark to see, so you follow his voice. He leads you to a doorway. On the other side, you find a group of men in lab coats scribbling on clipboards. The walls are lined with what you can only describe as science towers. Those weird metal monoliths you always seen in movies that seem to have big rolls of tape inside. At the center of it all stands the portal. An eight-foot-tall semicircle with a pulsing field of blue energy in the middle. One of the scientists addresses you. Welcome to the wave station. It's uh, pretty simple. You just walk through the portal, and you come out back on the correct side of the TV. Kind of feels like there should be more to explain, but that's about it. How about the limerick? There once was a doctor from Sicily. We we get it, doctor. We get it. Interjects Pelham. Well this is goodbye you aren't gonna come out of the same TV I did you ask did you get sucked into the TV in my living room in Poplar Montana yes Uh, no you answer probably not then oh I guess I just assume that we both got here the same way okay well goodbye Belham walks into the portal. You expected him to be more excited about going home, but his expression seemed more like that of a man sinking into his bed after a very long day. You guess it's smart not to waste time here. You step into the pulsating blue yourself. And everything goes black. TV's ready! Calls a voice from the distance. You open your eyes. You're in the repair shop, sitting in the folding chair. The middle-aged man stands behind the counter. You look at him, dumbfounded. TV's ready, he says again. Uh, where's the old guy, you ask. The middle-aged man pauses for a second. You saw him too, he fumes. He looks furiously around the room. Really, Dad, you're an open book to anyone that walks through that door, but your own son. Oh, what are you talking about, you say. You saw the ghost. He says flatly. You know, you're the 16th customer that he's appeared to, and I haven't seen him for a second since he died. Skipped every birthday I ever had, and doesn't consider that unfinished business? Now, to sell this place, move somewhere... warm. The windows rattle. Yeah, I've heard that a million times. Either show yourself like a man or leave me alone. Can I just pay for the repair? You ask. You give him your aunt's money and leave the shop. On the drive to your cousin's house, you think of all the different shows that had to be connected to each other for a place like The Waystation to exist. All those voices working together to create one cohesive universe. You always thought network TV was a big heap of garbage. But collaboration on that level, is kind of spectacular. You pull up to the house and your uncle brings a TV into Ben's room. You mix small talk with your mom and aunt for a bit in the living room. And then you say, you know, I think I'm gonna go watch the BVN crossover with Ben. Your mom's eyes go wide in shock. Is that okay? You ask. Oh, by all, by all means, sweetheart, she says. Your mom and your aunt exchange impressed looks as you head down the hallway to your cousin's room. You see him sitting on the floor, solemnly picking through the TV guide. Hello, when does the show start? You ask. I thought you only watched black and white movies with subtitles. He coldly replies. You didn't realize how much you heard him by being dismissive earlier. Eh, I'll watch anything that's good, you reply. And someone told me that the shows tonight are really good. His face lights up. He tells you in great detail the history of the three shows. Maybe the next three days won't be so bad. This path ends here. To pick another
2: path, return to Chapter 1.
0: Finally done editing this month's episode. And now to enjoy a relaxing drink of water, undisturbed. <laughs> what, you're still here? Jiminy, you guys will stop at nothing to find all the secret chapters. Well, you found this one, so I have to give you something. That's the law. Uh what do I got left? We already gave you a preview of next month. We already gave you a secret chapter. Uh, I got it. A cut chapter. Something that was cut from this month's episode. Uh, Please now enjoy chapter 43. No longer an official part of this month's episode.
3: Chapter 43. The car pulls the side of the road near the bridge. That's as close as Pelham can get you. Good luck, he says before peeling out. You figure he doesn't want to waste any more time convincing you. You make the long walk to the middle of the bridge, wondering how half a bridge specifically got featured on a TV show. Some crime show probably had a dramatic showdown in the middle of the bridge. The closer you get to the void, the faster you walk. You only picked this path because it was faster, but you've been trekking toward that spot for 20 minutes now, and you're starting to panic. Finally you make it. Inches in front of your face hangs a great absence of everything. Pure nothingness. You take the final step.
2: Chapter 44 You turn around, bend
3: over, and point your rear end at the shiny man. It feels great. You can't believe how much of your life you wasted on thinking instead of just reacting. You follow up the mooning by blowing him a raspberry and knocking everything off his desk. Whoa, what a rush. He looks so angry. You bare your teeth a little and he scurries out of the room. Good, that means Jane will be back soon. Shane takes care of you. But wait... What if she doesn't come back? What if you never see her again? Oh! You pick up the things you knocked off the desk and throw them against the wall. How could they do this? How could they leave you alone? It isn't right. You go on like this for a bit. You've given in to what the show wants from you. Any trace of the old you is gone. You are the Orangutan now. This path ends here.
2: To pick another path, return to Chapter 1. Chapter 45 You reach for the pen. Bolton takes it out of your hand. You
3: look at him. You reach for another pen. He takes that one out of your hand, too. No, shouts Bolton. There's nothing you could do to convince you need the pen to write a note. He turns his back to exit the room. You go for another pen. He catches you and puts all the pens in his pocket before leaving. He locks the door behind him. Your blood boils, you have one shot to get home, and this shiny jerk is blowing it for you. You're furious, you want to throw things, you want to break things, you want to pee on things. If you cool down and try to find a way to leave a note for the next person to walk in the room, skip to chapter 46. If you give in to your instincts and throw a tantrum, skip to chapter 47.
2: Chapter 46 You look around the
3: room for some way to explain yourself. You see the computer. You type out the following explanation. Hello, I am not an orangutan. I am a human trapped in an orangutan's body, trapped in a world that doesn't actually exist. Please escort me to the school's top scientists so that we may work out a solution. Thank you for your time. Hmm, no one's going to believe that. You start hitting the backspace key, but someone enters the room before you even make it through your time. It's a man in a yellow suit with a greasy ponytail. You turn the computer monitor to face him and hope for the best. The man cracks an evil grin, pulling a tranquilizer gun from his jacket pocket. Luckily, a second man enters the room and karate chops him in the back. A fight ensues. Fists and feet fly, one of them eventually knocking the tranquilizer out of yellow man's hand. You pick it up. Your best hope might be to sneak around the school, alone, looking for help. But then it would be good to have an ally. The second man has helped you so far. If you shoot both the men with the tranquilizer and try to find your own way home, skip to chapter 23. If you shoot only the man in the yellow suit and try to explain yourself to the other,
2: skip to chapter 24. Chapter 47 You set
4: about
3: destroying the room. You throw papers in the air, pull drawers from the desk, and smash them against the wall, and try to rip a hole in the couch big enough to fit yourself in. It feels so good, you feel in line with the universe in a way you'd never have before. This is what you're supposed to be doing. You turn to grab the computer monitor, but suddenly you're not alone. A man in a horrible sun-yellow suit with a bolo tie stands in the doorway. He has a greasy ponytail protruding from the back of his too-long head. But the most offensive part of the ensemble is a tranquilizer gun he has pointed directly at you. You lunge for a pen on the floor, hoping to explain yourself before you go down. Turns out pulling a trigger is a lot faster than writing, I am a human trapped in a orangutan's body. You wake up in a cage. Your thoughts are all rage and fear without words. Whatever was human in you never woke up from that tranquilizer nap. This path ends here. To pick another path, return to Chapter 1.
2: Hello, and welcome to Ben on Spielberg. I'm your resident Spielberg
0: apatheticist, Matt Benson. And I'm resident uh, Spielberg fanatic, Justin Kizan. And today we're going to talk about Duel, The Sugarland Express, Jaws, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, 1941, Raiders of the Lost E.T. the Extra-Terrestrial, Twilight Zone, Indiana the Jones and the, the Temple color of Doom, Indiana of Jones the Jurassic Lost World, Saving Private Minority The Term of Indiana Jones Adventures of Crystal Skull, Jones Close of the and the Steven Spielberg, Ben Vuon Spielberg. New episodes dropping on the 15th of every month at BenviewNetwork.com.